Major League Baseball presents Big League Tips. Look what you can learn about a baseball game from reading the box score. Each player's times at bat, runs scored, hits, and runs batted in. The inning-by-inning inning score, who made errors and extra base hits, how each pitcher did, how long the game took, and the attendance. Box scores help you spot the hot pitchers and hitters. Add to your baseball enjoyment. Read a box score today. Baseball fever. Catch it. The proceeding was a message on behalf of Major League Baseball. I know the rift is in your eye. What are you trying to Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, it's Nick Vance, Paranoid Futures on all social media. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as the Cinematness movie possible. If you like what we're doing... Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcast. Uh, subscribe to the YouTube page. Uh, you know, just hit us up everywhere. Cinematic Void. Um, but that it's a big help if you if you go and like hit the hit the like button. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, in a vacuum, like sending us a message like, "Hey, I really like the podcast." Well, that's cool. But like writing reviews and stuff like that helps to get it out there. So we're not a big secret. Although I'll say, probably from this time last year, comparatively. The podcast is much, much bigger, much bigger than I thought it would be. But yeah, if you want to show your support, enjoy the podcast, give it a, write, write a little review. We, we want to get it to the point where we don't have time to read your personal messages. So give us a great rating and we'll all get there together. We'll all get there together. And, you know, that, that's the journey. We're part of the journey here. So it's been a bit since we recorded a podcast, I think. When is it? March? April? When the fuck do we record? I don't, I'd lose track. So we've been doing these basically monthly. We may pick it up a little bit more here and there. We have life. We're fucking busy, man. So we should talk about what we've been doing in between the podcasts here. So we should, we'll we we'll start with Nick because Nick has been, you know, doing some intros, working on his other well, podcast. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, the day after we dropped the last podcast, which was the, uh, so you want to be a film programmer podcast, uh, like literally the day after, but like total coincidence, uh, I was asked in the office, like, Hey, do you want to, do you want to, uh, host a screening and pick a film? So like I, it was like literally the day after the podcast dropped, I became a film, uh, programmer. <laughs> so <laughs> Look at those results, goddammit. Straight up. It's just one, dude, one day after. Here, boom. It's all it takes. Uh, but actually, also, uh, I saw some other people kind of getting hyped on uh, on Twitter saying that they were actually going to try their hand at programming in their in their own uh, their own town or whatever. So, very cool. Good luck. Good luck to everyone. I was kidding about the gatekeeping thing. Please let me 
keep doing uh, programming. I'm having, I had so much fun. <laughs> but uh, I uh, so at the LF3 last Sunday for the uh, Sunday print edition we do at the American Cinematheque, I screened on uh, 35 millimeter uh, The Fire Within uh, by Louis Mao uh, from 1963. And it's part of the Criterion collection, so it was also like had it in my back pocket that uh, the podcast I'm doing with my buddy Nikolai that we haven't actually released any episodes yet, but is a criterion title so but we rushed back here to the studio and uh record an episode real quick um but yeah i got to pick up this film from the uh, janice catalog when, when picked it up where i typically pick up janice titles um and it's a beautiful glorious 35 millimeter print as they say was there other things you've been doing lately or anything like that yeah i'm getting my my new band's gonna go in the studio at the end of the month so i'm fucking pumped dog Pump dog. I'm 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 pumped dog. That's that's my <laughs> new name. Pump dog. Fuck. <laughs> Stupid. Uh, yeah, I'm fucking stoked, man. It's gonna be sick. So, yeah, doing doing things, making moves, making moves, doing all kinds of shit. I mean, I guess we we recorded in March. I th- yeah, that sounds I, about I, right. I, I think I think it was in the middle of the. I think it was like we were. You know, I think we were talking about the Cinemanda's sequel series, and I think I was hinting at Horror by the Water, which mm-hmm. was the thing I did in April. And, you know, I, I'm trying to think, I, yeah, I'm trying to think what we actually shown. Cause I'm like, I probably should actually go back and listen to the podcast, but like after listening to when like you do your edit, then I do my edits. Like, I don't need to listen to this shit again. Yeah. I feel that. I don't need to hear my fucking voice, but I do want to talk about horror by the water, which I think since January Giallo has been the most successful series I've done at the Lost Feelers three. Oh, sick. Like it all only did three movies because i went on vacation for the last week of april but like you know they all did really well showed a really beautiful 60 year old print of carnival of souls like it was probably one of the best in theater experiences of sitting and watching a movie i've had in a long time like carnival of souls like we're gonna probably talk about it at some point later this year cool maybe not on the janice podcast because i know i saw nikolai gave that movie t- two stars so we got beef oh yeah that's awesome i i'm we got i'm fucking itching beef. to watch it that rules <laughs> that is not a two-star Some, movie motherfucker yeah sometimes that fool uh, sometimes that fool i'll see him rate something that's super sick low so yeah shout out to nikolai Dude, fucking ain't, maniac main ain't no shout out we got a fucking professional <laughs> beef now i well he's you know he's <laughs> he's never seen they live but i want to see you guys do a straight up they live style brawl in an alley Man, Put these I, glasses on, motherfucker. Man, I, I, my knee's been giving out on me lately. <laughs> I go to fucking suplex him. He, I'm gonna just, I'm just gonna break my fucking leg. <laughs> I like you instantly go to suplex. Like that's that's the. Well, that was the. Uh, what was it? It was a backdrop. They did some wrestling moves in <laughs> yeah, Daily Live. They do. <laughs> but but anyway, that that Carnival Souls print was beautiful. Like especially for it was 60 years old original print. Also showed Messiah of Evil, which was from the 70s, which is a really great weird surreal slow burner have you ever seen messiah of evil nope i think you would dig it it's definitely art horror and like it has two kind of all-timer like really creep creepy scenes in it there's one that takes place in a ralph's there's another take that takes place in a movie theater (laughs) okay like it's really good and like that print was faded but like sometimes when you show faded prints it plays in the favor of the movie it just kind of gives it a different quality not everything works as a fade of print because it sometimes like if it's a really beautiful movie and you're watching with no color it sucks right but then you know exploitation movies kind of become a different creature when you take the color out and everything's like got a red hue so it played really really well and then we are i should say i closed out things with the fog 
Dom Atkins was supposed to show up, but like he had to cancel last minute when he realized it was a movie that his brother Tom was in that didn't have a mustache, so he refused to show up. Oh man, what a dick! Well, what actually happened is like Deanna Rooney was supposed to come out and she was supposed to play Jim Branscombe while I was playing Dom Atkins, and she ended up couldn't do it. So oh I just, man, like, that's so ridiculous! I love it. I I didn't feel like do- I I would have done the bit if she was there, but like I was like, nah, I can't do it without that. Yeah. But then after that, I took a week off went for a soul kind of a not soul searching that seems weird like you know basically took a solo vacation by myself went to Salem Massachusetts checked off my bucket list vision quest vision quest I think that's the proper term yeah vision quest stayed at the Hawthorne Hotel which is like one of the it's the historic hotel that's been there forever I've always wanted to stay there I wanted to stay there many of the Octobers that I went over the years but you can't book it because it's always booked like it, it's kind of like people that own like season like football or baseball tickets. Like you have to wait in line, and if someone drops out, then you get your chance to get in, kind of thing. So it's really hard to get in October, but in April it was pretty easy, or it was when I did. It, but like I was surprised when I went to Salem, and that place was fucking packed on the weekend. Where right on? I got there on a Thursday, and there was like, man, there's a lot of tourists here, and they're like, it was busy. I think at least through Saturday, Sunday kind of died off. So the homie Derek Millen. Cool. So uh, shout out to Derek. Um, speaking of They Live, he wants to come back on the podcast and talk about They Live and Roddy P- Piper. So Oh, hell yeah. We'll be doing that at some point later this year. Saw my friend Midnight Mark from the Coolidge. We had lunch together and saw Kay Lynch from Salem Horror Fest and had lunch with her. So did a little business stuff. Not really business. Like hanging out with contemporaries and stuff. But like a lot of it was like Salem's a small town, but I had somehow walked 60 miles in four days. Wow. Okay. I mean, I didn't have a car or anything, so anything I wanted to see that was like a mile or a mile and a half away, I just walked. Hell yeah. Okay. Got windburned and sunburned one day when I went to the Salem Willows. Salem Willows is kind of like off by the water. It's kind of like a weird, like, I'll try to explain it. It's like a boardwalk kind of town. It has like arcade games and weird pizza parlors and like clam shacks and shit like that. Cool. It's a, it's really, it's weird, but it's a really cool place because like, you know, most people go to Salem and it's just all witch shit. Right. And a couple other things I did was I did movie locations while I was there. And, and if you haven't checked them out yet, they're all on the Cinematic Void YouTube channel. I did like three Salem vlogs. I did, first one was on Burt I. Gordon's Burned at the Stake, a.k.a. The Coming. Because who else in their right mind is going to do a video location on that movie that no one's seen? <laughs> and Obviously, there's some easy things to find, like the Witch Museum or the House of the Seven Gables and stuff like that. But, like, what I was really excited, and I didn't find it until, like, literally the last day I was in Salem, was the house they used in the movie for the little girl. Okay. It took me forever. I had to do... I had a house address because it's on the door in the movie. And I was looking for photos of Salem in the 80s, and I found a street... And I saw a house on that street from the 80s that looked similar. So I was like, I'm just going to punch in the number and see what comes up on, you know, Apple Maps, Google Maps, whatever the fuck is on my phone. And I was like, holy shit, it's the house. It looks fucking identical. Nice. And the house behind it that you can see in the shot is identical. So I was like, fuck, I found it. Hell yeah. So that was that. I went to the cemetery that was used in the Lords of Salem, which is about a mile outside of the main drag of Salem. It's a really beautiful cemetery. And no one really talks about it because most of the people, when they do cemeteries in Salem, they do like the, the old bearing point, which I couldn't get into anytime because it was locked off. Mm-hmm. Apparently at some point it was unlocked and people could walk through. But like every time I went by, it was like locked up. 
And then there's the one from Hocus Pocus, but that's in Marblehead. So that's a little further uh, hike to get out. So I skipped that, but I did Lords of Salem one. That was really cool. Did most of the locations that I could find. I think I did skip, like like I said, the one cemetery from Hocus Pocus. And then I think I skipped the Pioneer Village because that was a little too far to walk. And I wasn't even sure it's open because, like, every time I've ever been to Salem, the fucking Pioneer Village has never been open. So, skip that, but did that, did some writing, sat outside, you know, had a, got into a meditative state, you know, kind of cleansed the soul. There you go. Hell yeah. Came back and started running right into, like, a lot of programming here. It's, you know, because I haven't, you know, as we're recording, I haven't done a screening in two weeks, which is yeah kind of yeah. unusual since like yeah since it was uh when you left man actually yeah that first monday without a cinematic void screening was like a little it felt a, something felt off you know yeah <laughs> and then we Not, had, you know I don't, I don't know if you plan to just actually still do weekly but you know it's i mean it, it's more up to programming and like it you know i'm actually skipping two mondays in may i skipped the this week as we're recording and then like I'll be back on the ninth for the last American version and then I think National Geographic has like some kind of rental thing on another Monday so but you know I got a bunch of stuff com- actually got a shit ton of stuff coming up it's um as we're recording the next week I'll be screening already said this the last American version with um Diane Franklin and Lawrence Monison to the stars of the movie it's a beautiful 35 millimeter print um, so it almost sold out at this point, which I'm really happy about because, you know, sex comedies from the 80s don't always do well programming-wise, but it's, it's going to be a fun screening. And also, it's a warm-up for the Cinematex Bleak Week, which if you've seen the movie, you know why, but I no spoilers here. Um, also, it's that the last American Virgin screening is part of the, I think it's like 82 the Summer of Movies series that the Cinematech's doing with Beyond Fest. I think that's what it's called. I saw it under a couple of different titles. So, And there's a bunch of things planned, like Rocky Three and Conan, Road Warrior, things like that. I, I'm I'm doing Last American Version. I'm also doing The Beastmaster with um, Don Coscarelli, director of Phantasm, and Paul Pepperman, who also he co-wrote and produced Beastmaster as well as Phantasm with Don. So a lot of Q&As coming up this week. And then I got some canon stuff coming up at the end of the month, which might be by the time this podcast comes out, might be as the podcast is coming out. I'm doing Ninja 3, The Domination on 35mm, which if you haven't seen is, it's a ninja movie with exorcist-like elements. <laughs> cool. Only from canon. It stars Lucinda Dickey, who was in on Breaking and Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo. It's got Shogazugi, the legendary like martial artist who basically played a million different ninjas in a different ninja in a million different um, ninja movies and then i'm closing things out with canon on may 30th memorial day with death wish for the crackdown where charles bronson single-handedly takes out all the drug dealers in los angeles good (laughs) (laughs) i watched the trailer for it recently and it's fucking ridiculous like it's it's literally like because Death Wish has always been like a rape revenge kind of series, and then it gets thrown out in this fourth one, so it's just like Paul Kersey, the you know. Yeah. Did we do a Death Wish? Did we do like two or something a while back? We did. We did Death Wish three for the void for the void three year anniversary, which seems like fucking decades mm-hmm. ago now. But I mean, did did we did we do a Death Wish on a, on a podcast? No, that was the only one we did was Death Wish three. Okay. Well, I think at some point we're gonna 
we'll probably talk about other Death Wish ones, mm-hmm. you know. But um, Death Wish Four is just like straight up like change the narrative. I think it was after like Bronson got pissed at Michael Winner for like right. going back and like sleezing up and making like Death Wish Three so much more violent. Refused to work with him again. Brought in, brought in Jay Lee Thompson who worked with the Bronson on a ton of stuff and. I don't know. There's some good one-liners in it. All, all I'm going to say is, if you haven't seen it, Charles Bronson just wants to make a sandwich. And speaking of bleak, the Cinematheque, I think, while was on... Or, yeah, I was still on vacation when they announced it. They're doing Bleak Week, which seems to be right up your alley. Yeah, definitely. It's it's pretty... Yeah, there's a bunch of shit that, that, that I've, of course, I've already seen, but I want to go see on the big screen, you know? Yeah. It, Funny games? Yeah. Jesus. I, when I was doing the Cinematis Midnights down the Arrow, I wanted to do funny games, but that series died. Uh, I want a double a double death. feature of both funny games. No, <laughs> don't do that. I, that remake is not that good. I, think, I mean, I think they're both great. Nah, just it it doesn't work the same when you have stars in it because like, re, I mean, because it, you know as we get off topic, but sort of on topic because we're talking about Bleak Week. You know, the, the Funny Games remake is a shop by shot for shot remake of the original Funny Games. Same director, same Naked City song that plays through yep. out it. But you have Tim Roth and Naomi Watts in it. And I think the reason why the remake doesn't work is because you have recognizable faces where like in the original Funny Games, like you don't know who all these people are and it, it feels really fucking real. Yeah. Until you get to that really, really fucking downbeat twist. Yeah, which is probably one of the greatest like visual fuck yous that any filmmaker could do in any film. Mm-hmm. But they're playing that. I'm actually doing two screenings within Bleak Week. I'm showing one of our high school favorites, Combat Shock. Oh yeah, with Buddy Giovanzo coming out. He'll be in. I think he lives in Germ or West Germany now, or or Germany. I guess there's no West Germany or whatever anymore. I guess it's just Germany. But he's going to be in town, and like he wrote Brett from Agfa about doing a screening, and Brett's like, hey, I'm coming to you with this. So talked to programming, made it happen. So I'm actually stoked for it because like, I think it was this band we had in spite, second demo we started off with a sound clip from Combat Shock. Hell yeah. I'm just going to drop it in right here. I felt a tremendous power surging through my veins. I think for Bleak Week, this may be the bleakest movie. Combat Shock? Yeah. Hell yeah. I mean, if, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. It's I mean, been a, man, it's been a while. I the, probably haven't seen this shit since like 97. The movie so. is fucking hopeless. Yeah. Like, I, I know Chris from Programming wrote Buddy to see if you want to write any more blurbs for any of the... Because they're working on a Bleak Week book that's or program that's coming out with it. But he was talking about like the movies he would like to write for, and obviously Solo came up and things like that. So yeah, I mean it. It is fucking bleak, and like they've talked about in the office, and like I I don't want to spoil it for anyone, and I don't want to spoil it for anyone now who hasn't seen it. We could, we, we might do an episode we're talking about, but it's fucking nihilistic as fuck. Yeah, there ain't no there ain't no way around this one. And then the other film 
that I'm presenting is a rare 35mm print from the Library of Congress of the seventh victim, which was produced by Val Luton, who produced cat people and things like that. And it's kind of another nihilistic movie, but it's like 1940s, so, you know, haze code stuff, but like it does have a a very, very horrifying and depressing downbeat ending. I originally pitched seconds for Bleak Week, which I still think would have been a pretty good spot, but I'll do seconds at some point. Get it in there. I, I know. I know. We've talked about this in the past. Is there a is there a thirty five of that floating around? Of seconds, uh, UCLA has one. So. Cool. Right. 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 So whenever I do it, I got to do it, plan it out in advance, just right. to make sure we can get it. So eh, we've talked about a bunch of things that been going on. What's been happening? You know, Nick stepping up, coming as programmer's own right. <laughs> I feel like we should do a master class on that. So you want to be a film programmer thing. Like, you know how David Lynch and like fucking who else does those like master classes? I like, mean, shit, man, that podcast is pretty fucking informative. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if we need to follow up, but like, I, I guess if you listen to it and you enjoyed it and there's other things you want to know or like more, you know, deeper like programming and like that kind of baseball type stuff. Let us know. We might, we can always do another episode. And since I've said the magic word, we can start transitioning into what this episode's about. And it's baseball. Now, this was an episode you suggested last year. And we, I think at different points, we had it on our schedule and it just dropped out for whatever reason. That's right. Because I want to talk about that wild thing. That's his name, some Vaughn. Major, fu- we're talking about Major League, folks. Major League. Fuck. <laughs> Well, we're not talking about Major League, but like we are talking about two. the the one where if you dream it, it'll happen. Oh, yeah. fucking! Oh, god damn! It. There's a misquote. Oh, he's fucking. <laughs> if you dream it, it will happen. If you think it, manifest it. Man, uh, somehow it might be actually better than the actual catchphrase. <laughs> if you if you think really hard, it may happen. Go to the cornfield now. My fucking field of dreams. Um, what other baseball movies are you going to throw at? Uh, League of Their Own. The Sandlot. The Sandlot. Yeah, we're going to talk about none of those movies. Uh, uh, Are you really trying to pull another one out of your ass? The Sam Raimi one. The Sam Raimi baseball movie? Let's fucking go. Oh, that's right. That's (laughs) fucking right. He did do one. Fuck. What is it called? Uh, Two seconds here. Hang on. Yeah. We're going to burn her fucking, like, look up. Your fucking lifeline. Lifeline already over a fucking... I remember he did do a fucking baseball movie shit. For the love of the game. That's what it fucking was. And I mean, while we're at Clint Eastwood did one too. Isn't there one just called like Mr. Baseball maybe? Oh, that's the fucking Tom Selleck one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, but we're, we're talking about none of those things. We're talking about Void-centric baseball-related movies. And the amount of baseball... Bull Durham? Fucking hell, man. <laughs> Fucking Bull Durham. I mean, you're saying that, and Susan Sarandon's been in the news lately. I, uh, yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, we're not going to talk about it. But she's, <laughs> she, she's in it for two different reasons. So. Okay. Actually, like three, but they're all related to the same thing. I don't have time to get into Susan Sarandon, that kind of shit. You know, you guys have Twitter. Yeah. Just fucking look up her name. You will see like 1,500. I mean, I want to say something about Twitter. I follow specific people. I don't want to see fucking everyone else's shit. Yeah, uh, I kind of like it. 
I kind of like it. I kind of like the way that they've done that lately. It's just like show it's a, I don't know. I get my own little box. You know what I mean? I have what I follow. Sure. But like, if it doesn't show me kind of other things, I'm, I'm in this like very insular world where I don't get to see other perspectives. It just kind of throws it. Twitter now just kind of throws everything at you. Yeah. But then I don't see anything from anyone. I actually know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's that's that, true. That's my. It's like a feed of shit. You don't know what the fuck it is. Hey man, I don't give a. <laughs> I don't give a fuck about the Met Gala. Yeah, I don't give a fuck about like a lot of like the superficial. I don't give. A f- There's a lot of dumb shit, and like if you wa- read one post on one article, you will get fucking nothing. Like, I think I clicked on one link, and this was a couple months ago about Ye and fucking. Kim Kardashian mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden my whole feed was like fucking suggested posts about like their fucking drama I was like no I just it was from someone I knew I can't remember who it was mm-hmm. I re- looked at the article or something like that it's true and algorithms that, are awful these days I'll fucking click on something I'm curious about on YouTube and now I've just ruined my fucking shit and I'm seeing shit related to whatever that was for a fucking week it's just annoying as hell the world the world is just annoying as fuck yeah <laughs> and fucking fuck goddamn algorithms anyway and i think we did talk about how they suck on fucking the programming podcast in terms of advertising mm-hmm. so as we've had many a sidebars we're talking baseball related genre movies and i do want to talk about a few that we aren't talking about today because originally we had a bigger kind of pool of things we we're going to talk about and i i kind of just wanted to do it as a baseball doubleheader mm-hmm. just a good old-fashioned baseball doubleheader uh, so ones we're not going to talk about was the fan with Wesley Snipes and Robert De Niro directed by Tony Scott. I think we just screened that at LF three, maybe. Yeah. It was for the Biltmore hotel pool or whatever fucking <laughs> series that was. And I thought it was going to be Dur fan and I was excited. Or it could have been the fan with Lauren Bacall mm-hmm. where she has the Michael Baines, her fucking stalker. Okay. A lot of fans. Yeah, Der Fan, the movie shot in goddamn Germany, like taking place at the Biltmore Hotel. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I didn't really. I just heard the fan was playing. I'm like, looked it up like, ah, disappointed. (laughs) I mean, there's nothing wrong with the fan. I also think it's a little outside of like Boyd centric. Like we can go a little art house. We can go a little commercial action. We can do a lot of things. I just I I just thought for the scope of it, it just didn't fit. I, uh, and that's not that I think it's a bad movie. Another thing I left out, we were going to talk about, there's a section in John Carpenter's Body Bags that's, funny enough, directed by Toby Hooper that stars Mark Hamill. And at, his balls. And his balls? Yeah, it shows his balls in that segment. You can see him. I don't remember. But... Yeah, totally go back and watch. You see his balls. Man, <laughs> fuck, man. What is this, Teen Wolf? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> anyway, if you want to see fucking... Mark Hamill, who got his eye busted out with a baseball and his balls and his new eyeball. There, I think it's called the eye. I think that's what the segment, not the balls, his eye. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. But I, I don't know. It, I, 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 it's I, the only thing I remember about that segment. <laughs> I, I have no recollection of this. Like, and I, please do not send this fucking screen grabs Mark Hamill's balls. <laughs> Whatever you do. God damn it. Anyway. Did I make this up? I don't know. I, I mean, I guess I'll go back and watch it now, too. I swear this is something that, like, yeah, the last time I watched it, I'm like, okay, that's Mark Hamill's balls. I, I have no comment on but this. Yeah. Fuck. All right. So, regardless, it's a movie about baseball and apparently balls, I guess, or a segment. 
But I, I feel like we might talk about anthology films at some point, so I figured just keep it all together. And the last thing that I had out there was a TV movie called Murder at the World Series, which I've never seen, and I think I found it on YouTube, and it's just like, you know what, also, but where schedule's been, like, as we transition back to, like, doing more of these, like, themed podcast around movies i don't want to do too many movies off the back because like i know you've been doing a shit ton of print traffic and i'm just coming back from, from vacation getting like resorted here so left that one out but you know probably check it out at some point so the movies we're going to talk about today are a movie from 1989 and a movie from 1990 and they are very polar opposite which is fine and we'll as we talk about them, we're going to talk about the amount of how much baseball matters in these movies. Yeah. Which <laughs> your the mileage is going to vary on this. We're going to talk about Night Game, which you just watched recently for the first time. Actually, I watched it maybe a month and a half ago for the first time. It, it's always been on my list, and I've heard like mixed to not good things about it. But I kind of enjoyed it, and we'll talk about it here in the next segment that's going to be coming up in a second. And then the other movie we're talking about is a movie you've been, basically I think the real reason that we're doing this episode of the podcast, which is Blood Games. Yeah, I think I think I had made a suggestion, uh, maybe even when we first started the podcast, uh, when we were nearing uh, opening day, and that was just kind of the, the, the suggestion was like, why don't we do, you know, why don't we do some baseball films uh, around when baseball season starts? Uh, I don't know if you're, I don't think either of us are particularly like baseball fans. Like I used to go to O's games every once in a while. I've been to a few Dodgers games, but like, do I care? Like, I mean, I, I've been to two baseball games in my life. Two, went, just two. Just two. And <laughs> it was when I still lived in Maryland. I went to Memorial Stadium, which is the old stadium where the Baltimore Royals played, and they won. And then I went to Camden Yards, which I assume is still the stadium that the Orioles play in. I this is how fucking out of touch I am. Wow. So you've been you've been to both stadiums. Though. I've been That's to both amazing. stadiums and cool. the Orioles lost that game. Um I mean the Orioles lost? Yeah, get out. Get the fuck. I, I think the last time they won a didn't they win a World Series in like nineteen eighty or eighty one or it something? Was, I think it's eighty three. Eighty three. It was shit. I was Yeah. I was, so yeah, they haven't won in forty years. Yeah. So. As of next year. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the 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 biggest thing about Baltimore Orioles, at least for both of us, was like Cal Ripken Jr. Mm-hmm. And course, and that and that fuckface bat. Oh well, for his brother Billy. Yeah. And the story about like when a bunch of people try to kidnap um, Cal Ripken Jr.'s mom and hold her for ransom. The shit that matters. The shit that matters. That's the shit we care about in baseball. <laughs> None of it, which actually has to do with like the love Pete, of Ro- game. Pete Rose gambling, like I, oh, you know, ster- fucking- steroids. Lenny fucking D- scandals, you know, fucking like, Lenny Dykstra selling used cars. Yeah. Like that's the shit I care about. Like I, I will say this, like I read this a bunch of years ago and this is from our friend, Jim DeHaven. He had a uh, John Cruck, who was a baseball player's autobiography called I ain't no athlete lady. <laughs> Funny enough, John Cruck only had one ball cause he lost one of them. Okay. Tying it back to the Mark <laughs> he, Hamill. He thing. lost it. He misplaced it somewhere. Yeah. I, I, I forget the story. <laughs> I, I, I I don't want to say he had testicular cancer or something like that. It, it, he he's got one ball, okay. but not that that matters. But we already talked about Mark Hamill's no ju- no judgment, no judgment. You know, we're ally. If you only have one ball, we're we've got your back, bro. It's fine. One ball, two ball, no balls. It doesn't no matter. No judgment, homie. But his autobiography talked about when he played with the Philadelphia Phillies with like Lenny Dykstra, where like basically like it was just like a dirt bag like fucking baseball team. Mm-hmm. And, like, they all smoked and, like, you know, 
chewed tobacco and like drank after games and shit like that. And I always thought someone should have made that into a movie. But no one ever did. But anyway, that's about the extent of my baseball knowledge. Who's the, who's the good New York guy that was always in trouble for drugs? Oh, Daryl Strawberry? Daryl Strawberry, yeah. Oh. Hell yeah, Daryl Strawberry is so sick. Oh, the, <laughs> but then we can talk about that Simpsons episode where they're like, Mr. Burns got all the baseball players. Where he fucking kept making Don Mattingly like shave his sideburns when he didn't have it. I feel like some bad shit came out about Don Mattingly too. I mean, probably just that whole era, right? Just just like scumbags. I mean, like Roger Clemens. I mean, I feel like we know more about baseball. Yeah, dude. Than... But we're all we're all just naming like the baseball cards we had at a certain age. <laughs> well, I, we're also naming like, like the... oh yeah, Nolan Ryan, yeah. fucking dude. Oh. <laughs> Nolan Ryan. The, 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 the... I don't know a fucking thing about baseball now. But like, <laughs> I just remember like there was another player named Robin Ventura who like Nolan Ryan hit with a ball and. Nolan Ryan was pretty old at the time, and Robin Ventura like charged the mound, and Nolan Ryan put him in headlock and just beat his fucking ass. <laughs> See, this has nothing to do with the winner or loser of any of these games. I don't care about any of that shit. <laughs> I just care about the fucking drama. Hell yeah! If they were fucking gambling, mm-hmm. they're fucking doing drugs. I mean, not steroids. Steroids that that's fucking boring. Yeah, it's boring except for the fact that, like, look at fucking... <laughs> we really are talking about baseball here. Like, look at fucking Jose Canseco and fucking... What was his name? Mark, Mark McGuire. McGuire. Like, those guys. Those, what do they call them? The fucking... Bash Brothers? <laughs> the Bash Brothers. And, I mean, they were fucking lampooned by fucking... Uh, Andy Samber. Oh, Lonely Island. But, like, for... I mean, but those guys were fucking monsters, dude. Dude, yeah, like, dude, they look like professional wrestlers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, it's like fucking... Macho Man Randy Savage fucking like hitting it. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> Incredible. That I I miss that era of baseball. I would I would go to those games if I knew that there would be like some fights, some drugs, some fucking <laughs> Man, it's just I couldn't tell you a fucking thing about baseball now. I want a combination of pro wrestling and baseball. I, I think that's why it's not even on nostalgia. We should create that. Yeah. We should we should be uh sports entertainment entrepreneurs and create like pro wrestling baseball. Like you're round, you fucking when you knock over the catcher for like when there's like a you know call like home base, you have to fucking like leg drop them or some shit. Fuck yeah, man. There's it, some ropes to jump off of to fucking drop. <laughs> fuck, dude. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I you know what? Now that I think about it, the nostalgia I have for pro wrestling is tied into the nostalgia I have for baseball. Like I couldn't care less of who won or like, but I feel like. They were one and the same in yeah. some ways because they were all fucking roided up. I mean, I, I'm sure there was other sports that had like big drug problems or whatever. I mean, I know there's always rumors about like, you know, I think it was Freddie Gibbs talking about like the fucking 1985 Bulls where everyone's on a cocaine circus or some oh, shit. Oh, like wow. That. Okay. At least that's what he's rapping about. I don't know. I, I, I don't know enough. Like, I can't even pretend to know enough about basketball. I think there was the one guy, the Maryland college guy that fucking dropped dead on the court. And I think that was due to cocaine. It's a hell of a drug, man. And if it wasn't, apologies. Maybe he just dropped dead. But I think I think that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I don't know. Hell yeah, drama. drama. I love. I love it. Bring the drama back to sports. Fuck the drug testing. Fuck the bullshit. Let's let's have them like intertwine each other's lives. Just yeah. like let's bring sports back. Exactly. I mean, when's the last time we had Bo Jackson? Fuck yeah. Or the Boz. Hell yeah. Brian Bosworth. What, yeah. what movies was he in? He wrote he the in, motorcycle. He was in Stone Cold, which we'll, <laughs> one of the movies we're talking about today had a guy that was in Stone Cold with him. Hell fucking yeah. Lance Henderson. Holy shit. <laughs> fucking Stone Cold was fucking hard, dude. Hell yeah. 
<laughs> fucking Bo Jackson. It was, who all played two sports? It was Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, Deion Sanders also rapped, like... Fuck yeah. Dude, it just... And then we can talk about boxing and Mike Tyson. Like, I, I feel like we don't know shit about sports, but we know enough of the pop culture No, we just remember when sports used to be sick. Yeah. Dude, Mike, Mike Tyson fucking boxing that dude's ear off on the plane last week or two <laughs> weeks ago. <laughs> I mean, that, that dude had it coming. He really did. Man, we got to do a boxing episode, too. Oh, we should. Fuck like, yeah. I, well, we should have Matt, Matt Average, our friend, on, because he used to take photos for HBO Boxing. Oh, sick. And, like, he, he used to, I think he worked a couple of Bernard Hopkins fights, and Bernard is, like, was probably one of the, probably one of the greatest middleweight boxers ever. And Bernard also knew how to systematically frustrate people. He had, he always was the master of the accidental headbutt. Hell yeah! Like, well, if we do a boxing episode, we should have Matt on. I, I know you know you're fucking boxing too. So goddamn. Yeah. So well, yeah. The the one sport that like no one likes. Everyone's like, I like you, 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 you see it or whatever that fucking is. I don't even know what that <laughs> fucking mixed martial arts. Yeah, MMA, UFC. Yeah, I, they're actually like two different things. I think they're like. Or, I thought they were one and the same. Well, I don't know. Like uh, MMA is a part of UFC, but UFC is just an organization. Yeah, I, I guess it's like it's it's like WCW and WWF yeah. and like NWA and all those like you know different wrestling promoters, rappers, rappers, yeah, rappers. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we're gonna take a quick break here, but when we come back, we're gonna actually possibly maybe talk about some baseball and softball related movies here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. As a shortstop, I know a lot about double plays. Like the Track Auto Orioles $100,000 double play sweepstakes. Every week, one lucky winner gets $4,000, and 10 other folks will win a pair of Oriole tickets. With the $100,000 double play sweepstakes, you've got two chances to win each week. Enter every week at one of Track's many convenient locations around Baltimore. Enter to win today. Track Auto, over 10,000 parts, price to go. There sure are a lot of Ripkins in this town. People call me Nails because they say I'm tough as nails. But I'll tell you, I haven't been tough enough to beat spit tobacco. I've tried, and I'm going to keep trying until I win. But until then, do both of us a favor. Copy my hustle. Copy my desire. But please don't copy my tobacco use. Just play the game! Message furnished by Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association. Welcome back. We're going to be talking about some baseball and softball-related movies here on the Cinematic Void podcast. Up first is a movie from 1989 directed by Peter Masterson called Night Game. For those of you who don't know, Peter Masterson was kind of a little of a character actor from Texas. He had little bit roles in The Exorcist and Stepford Wives. Just trying to make a more Void-related tie into this. The film stars Roy Scheider, best known for being in the Jaws, the French Connection, all that jazz. I, th- I think Sorcerer, I think Roy Scheider is the real king of 70s cinema. Mm-hmm. I've said this multiple times. You know, he's also a marathon man. Like, I I think at some point people need to talk about, like, everyone talks about Gene Hackman and, like, Robert Redford and De Niro and all those guys. And they're all great actors. But when I think 70s cinema, I think fucking Roy Scheider. Well, this film is from 1989, and I'm pretty sure he's the same age in this film as he was in Jaws in the fucking mid 70s. Yeah, it's like he, like, like he, yeah, he, he doesn't age, but more so, was he ever young? That's a good point because every movie I've seen, like you know, I 
he might have been some stuff from the 60s that I can't think of, but like primarily from 70 to like 90, where he was in a lot of stuff, he, he did look pretty much exactly the same. He's always just a little leathery or a super tan. Like he just always had that same look, the same, like the same exact, like the, his hair's the same. Oh, yeah. Same guy. Same guy. I mean, fuck it. I don't know how. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, the movie also stars Karen Young, who, to tie back to Roy, was in a Jaws sequel, Jaws the Revenge, which we talked about on our Christmas episode last year. Lane Smith, who you'll recognize from The Son-in-Law, as well as Over the Edge and Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Paul Gleason, who is the basically the principal at in the breakfast club, mm-hmm. the major dick guy and Rex Lynn, who's been in a couple interesting movies, the long kiss goodbye and under the silver lake, which I think is a pretty, pretty good LA movie, which we might talk about at some point. Cool. If we ever talk about LA movies. Have you seen, I haven't No, it's, it's on the list, but no, I've just never really gotten to it. Yeah. And it's very mixed reviews. Uh, I, I think the mixed reviews comes from people that see themselves in the movie. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. But, We'll save that for another day. Cool. Uh, the film was shot by Fred Murphy, who lends everything from Cue the Winged Serpent to Hoosiers, okay. which is a pretty, I'd say a wide range of cinema there. Is that a basketball film? Yeah, Hoosiers was the high, uh, it was a, yeah, it was college, or is it high school? I can't remember. It was, like, it was Dennis, Dennis Hopper's big comeback movie after he oh. cleaned up and gave up drugs and alcohol. He did that in Blue Velvet. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. That's a weird one-two punch and for the soundtrack it's by pino dinaggio who we talked about a lot you know for giallo films you know argento films and also brian de palma films and i will say this score has a lot of fucking saxophone Mm -hmm. excessive amount of saxophone but it was the late 80s and i think like that i think there was a trend at a certain point where like saxophone was just overused Mm -hmm. on soundtracks i don't know why Maybe we should ask the saxophone player at some point. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever. I mean, I don't know why I'm getting stuck on the saxophone. I just remember listening to it. like, man, there's a lot of fucking saxophone in this movie. Yeah. And I don't know if it's appropriate or not. Right. I'm but, not, I, I like a lot of jazz now, but I'm not, I'm not a big horn guy in the first place. Like I don't like it over any like rock music or something. Yeah. You know, it just, it just bugs me. It's, it, it makes, it makes all like rock music sound like the Saturday Night Live theme <laughs> and it fucking drives me nuts. Or a ska band. Yeah, and, you know, let's not even go there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this movie was shot in and around Galveston and Houston, Texas, and features the legendary Houston Astrodome, which was also used in such movies as Robert Altman's absolutely batshit Brewster McCloud, and the TV movie that we mentioned earlier, Murder at the World Series. For those of you who haven't seen it, although you probably should since we are going to get into spoilers and stuff, I feel like even though it should be implied... There's going to be spoilers. Maybe we should just say it. Yeah. So, you know, anytime we're discussing a proper movie and potentially other movies, there's going to be spoilers because we're just going off the cuff here. So It's been out since 89. Well, that's the other thing. (laughs) It's not like we're talking about a movie that came out last week and like, by the way, Doctor Strange only has one ball. Right. But, I mean, is that really a spoiler? I don't know. Fuck. Everybody already knows that Doctor Strange only has one ball. <laughs> but you know what I mean. It, like, it, basically... It's canon. It's canon. It's canon now. <laughs> uh, anyway, whatever. It's We're talking about old movies. In order to talk about old movies, we're going to have to talk about spoilers to kind of discuss them. So, I, I feel like it's implied, but I feel like we should start saying it. Because I feel like, as I said 
in the first segment, the audience has grown, and we never really did spoiler warnings. We just like, fuck it, here you go. So if you want to pause, watch the movie, or if you just want to listen to it, get the, all the information. Because I, I also feel like on the, another side, talking about movie and spoiling it for people to some extent doesn't really spoil the actual movie. Mm-hmm. It I think it also might make people go see it. It's like, oh, that fucking happens? I need to go see that. Yeah. So mixed camp, but anyway, spoilers abound. So, plot for this movie. A police detective tracks a serial killer who is stalking young women on a beachfront after each game that a baseball pitcher wins. Pretty pretty snappy little log line there. So, first off, how much baseball is actually in this movie? It's kind of the fucking bookend. Yeah, it's kind of the book. It's in the background. Yeah. it's. I, I guess my other point of reference of baseball... Going back to, funny enough, Daryl Strawberry, is it, you've seen Bad Lieutenant, Abel Ferrara's Bad Lieutenant. I haven't. Oh, fuck. I haven't. You need to see it. Yeah. So there's lots of bits where Harvey Keitel is in his police car listening to, like, Mets games with Daryl Strawberry, and he's gambling on them, whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of baseball on the radio. Cool. In this movie. So Would you a, call it a baseball film? Bad Lieutenant? Uh, I he, mean. You made some leaps before. <laughs> you know, it is integral to the plot. Yeah. But you also get to see little Harvey Keitel. You know, you talk about Mark Hamill's balls. You get to see the full, mm-hmm. full Monty Harvey <laughs> Keitel. There's a lot of dick and ball talk today. Sweet. I mean, it, I mean, what do you think of base, baseball bats a dick? You got to throw some balls. Yeah. There you go. See, everything. It all, it's all related, but I, it's really not a baseball movie. Because, like, it's integral to the plot, but, like... In the in the bearing of the baseball games does have some effect, but it's not the real narrative. Mm-hmm. Where this is really, you know, the results of baseball games are directly tied to what happens in this movie. This is kind of a first time watch for both of us. Me a little bit before you. So, what I mean, what what was your like kind of feelings on when you were watching it? Well, first off, this has one of the least memorable uh, titles of all time, like. You could tell me the name of this fucking movie a million times, and I'll still go, hey, man, what was that movie I was supposed to watch? I fucking have no night moves, game day. Get, I don't know. I mean, I, I, a million, it's similar to like a zillion fucking things. I mean, it, it's, it's an apt title for the movie, and it's also greatly generic. It is, it is apt, but it's, yes, it's just so generic that like, motherfucker. However, I've seen the key art for this, I don't know if I saw it years ago. I don't know if I saw it on a VHS shelf back in the day. I don't know where the fuck I know it from, but the hook going, the hook hand going through the baseball like that. I've just, I've seen that a bunch. So like with very unmemorable name, very memorable art. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like where movies, you know, there's plenty of movies that have killer titles and like have suck ass art. Yeah. And like that, that's, I mean, that is one of the main reasons I've always wanted to see this movie is because that fucking poster art with the fucking, like, claw hook hand mm-hmm. in the fucking baseball, it's like, shit's going to get real. Yeah. And I guess without, like, doing a lot of research, I was I thought there was going to be more baseball in it. But, mm-hmm. like, literally, the amount of baseball in this movie is background. Yep, totally. <laughs> but, you know, you're, you're telling me something like that. Watching this movie kind of reminded you of, like, watching TV back in the day. You want to... Yeah, it's like... the. Uh... There were, you know, back when we just watched TV and everything wasn't so fucking on demand, you know, you would get home from somewhere or you would just flip the TV on and you're not flipping the TV on at fucking exactly six o'clock. It's 615 or it's 1230, 1239. And the movie's already been on for 
20 minutes or something. And I don't know, there was just like an era of movies. And I think a lot, like a lot of like the seventies and even like kind of more exploitation stuff that even you're super into, like a lot of that stuff, like you, you know, you could just turn it on 20 minutes in and like, it doesn't matter that you missed the beginning. Like, I don't know, like it's that era of, of film is like comforting somehow, like to just sit down and just, you turn it on and you go like, yeah, this is pretty cool. I'll keep, I'll keep, I won't change the channel. I'll keep watching it. And then like, by the end, you kind of make a decision, like the next time that it's on, are you going to try to f- be there when it starts to catch those first 20 minutes or whatever, you know, like how many movies in your life did you sit down like in the same kind of scenario? And like, you never saw the beginning. Oh, it was plenty, especially you know? growing up. Like, yeah, it wasn't until like maybe getting a VCR when you start taping stuff. Like, mm-hmm. But even if you taped it, you might still watch what was going on live at the same time. And yeah. then, like when the tape's done, you might rewind and watch the other stuff. But like, yeah, it there something in like that era of films and like how they played on TV. And actually, I think it lends itself to how the movie is because the movie's fucking laid back. Yeah, for yeah, a yeah. police procedural like murder mystery. Mm-hmm. It, it's like, like it's the kind of thing you turn on and in a few minutes even though you you started in the middle in a few minutes you know what's going on you can kind of you can fill it in it's a murder mystery this is how he's the cop yeah like it's fucking boom 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 it's all there you don't it doesn't matter i miss that like i, I most of the shit i watch now it's just like if you're not fucking totally invest invested in like every second like you fucking miss the whole thing and you know, sometimes I do just want to sit down and fucking straight up turn off. And and this is great for it. So like I may not even rate it high, but like it's it, it really appeals to to like some nostalgia in me. I mean, it doesn't ask a lot of you because like I do think it you could watch pick up this movie at any point mm-hmm. and fully figure out where you know, what the premise is. Yeah. I mean, I, I I think there's something like to be said about that in a movie or just how movies are. And it's like, you know, obviously there's movies that are more complex that you have to pay attention to and that kind of stuff. And, like, those are cool, too. But, like, I feel like I think this is where, like, things like Netflix and that kind of stuff fails because they make these movies that are, like, you're supposed to be hyperly engaged. But because the way streaming and Netflix and chill or whatever fucking catchphrase you want to use, <laughs> you don't want to actually engage. You fucking tune out. And because the way those movies are made and designed and how they look when you tune out, you're not fucking paying attention. Yeah. Whereas like if your brain's disconnected, you can still understand that Roy Scheider's looking for a fucking serial killer. Mm -hmm. It's also, Hey man, like, and now in this modern age, this kind of movie is the only kind of movie where you can get away with really just fucking around your phone and you're watching it. (laughs) You know, if you really want to, you know, it's, it's a good and bad thing. Yeah. I mean, but I I guess we'll, we should talk about a little bit of moving like more out, outside of like the the nostalgia of like how we used to, or how people used to watch movies. I mean, you know, Roy's character is like he's an ex minor leaguer that became a cop. I guess he's a hot shot, hot headed cop and then it's kind of implied there's like some incident in Dallas or some shit they keep bringing it up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll say this, I think Roy is probably like 20 years old too old for this role, but at the same time, he looks exactly how he looked in like 1975 when he was doing Jaws. So like I that kind of invalidates it. Yeah. But plus, like, same thing with just, like, era-wise, Hollywood, or I don't know if you'd call this Hollywood, but, like, you know, they got away. It wasn't always just, like, the young hot guy. Like, yeah. like back in the day, you could have fucking uh, t- Tom, Tom Atkins, yeah. you know? You have, like, 
you don't need some fucking handsome guy. I mean, not that he's not. I mean, he's a handsome guy. But, but you know what I mean. It, it's like there, there's a difference between like, and I'm not trying to be disparaging, like, you know, Paul Rudd or Ryan Reynolds versus mm-hmm. like Roy Scheider or Gene Hackman or a, a like people with character. Large difference. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and it's like, I'm not trying to like, you know, I'm not trying to debate talent or anything. I just mm-hmm. think like there was a point where you would plug in like a well-established character actor to fucking lead a movie. Kicks ass. And now we're closer to maybe like how the 1940s, 1950s would do where everything's cast on star power. Mm-hmm. Like in Marvel movies, like it's always going to be the prettiest motherfuckers. Do you, that be do you think lead. it's a, do you think that type of uh, changes in culture is a pendulum swing? Do you think it'll eventually go back to I, character actors and I, older I, folks? I honestly feel like, and I could be wrong, but I feel like we're about to hit an implosion with like superhero franchise shit. I know we're getting off topic here, but like my, I have a theory that, and people are going to get mad that I say this superhero movies are the new musicals, Mm -hmm. which is not to say there's plenty of great musicals. There's plenty of great superhero movies. I don't really actively watch superhero movies or musicals, but there was the demand for them. And I think we're hitting the point that we're getting to the oversaturation point where people are going to start wanting something different. And I think, you know, maybe that avenue is going to be more like HBO Max and like that kind of original like series content, which seems like people were really engaged for like, you know, Yellow Jackets, which I haven't mm-hmm. seen. People were engaged in kind of like things that would probably be the mid range movie or the lower budget. Like I'd say the five to 50 million dollar movies mm-hmm. where like people like David Lynch and like John Carpenter and like those kind of people occupied like, you know, artistic movies. And I do think they're going to come back. I mean, also, it depends on what's going to happen to streaming. I mean, I would like to see, like, kind of a move in, like, the theatrical experience to get away from, like, fucking IMAX and all that kind of stuff. Like, yeah. Where it's not even about the movie, it's about the format. And, I mean, that's kind of hypocritical to say because I show a lot of movies based on the format, which is <laughs> film, you know. But I... At the end of the day, when I'm showing a film on film, it's still about what the movie's about. Where it's like... I feel like people go to movies now more for experience than engaging in art. Not, not all the time, but like, but I think at a certain point, it's just like, you're going to become numb to it. Like how many fucking Marvel movies are at this point? 30 some. Yeah. It's just like, and they all have a sameness to them. And it's like, I know as we're recording this, like Sam Raimi's directing that new Dr. Strange movie, but it's not enough to get me to go see it. Yeah. I I like, you know, I really like Spider-Man too. Yeah, but like, but that was a different era of fucking superhero yeah, movie. Yeah, no, no doubt, man, no doubt. But yeah, even Sam Raimi can't get me to go see that thing. Nah. Even even if Doctor Strange only has one ball. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, you know, I think like movies like Night Game, like don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I just feel like I mean, occasionally like there was um, Adrian Lyne had a erotic thriller with um, Ben Affleck. I forget the name of it. It was actually pretty good. Okay. It's on Hulu now because, like, after Disney bought Fox, they just started fucking dumping all those Fox Searchlight and Art House titles yeah. without giving a fuck. I, you know, I, I just feel like adult movies, which I guess in some ways this is, but, like, this is also kind of like a dad movie or how a traditional dad movie is. I see that, yeah. And maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just hit the dad mode of my life where I just, like... Because, like, this movie, it, it's, and I, we, I was kind of talking about it, and we were talking about the experience. It's fucking laid back. Yeah. Like, just whatever, you know. I, the thing I, the reason why I kind of hit my radar is because, like, 
we've been talking about doing a follow-up episode to the Giallo adjacent episode. And, like, you know, movies that show traits, and this was one of them. And, like, I kind of pulled, don't think it's enough, but there is Giallo moments. Mm-hmm. There's actually, I think there's some, there's also slasher moments, but it's more of a, like, it's a police procedural thriller, you know, yeah. overall. But I don't want to deny that, like, you know, there's a giallo element to it, because, like, you know, the killer is only specifically killing people when a, a certain pitcher wins. Right. And that's the only time. That's pretty sick. Yeah, I mean, like, that's like, you know, certain, like, Serial killers can only kill in the full moon and, like, mm-hmm. all that weird shit. But, like... Man's got to have principles. Man's got to have principles. Uh, another thing I liked about this, and this is because I was... I think it was right before, like, um, I did the Horror, Horror by the Water series. It's, like, most of this movie and most of the murders... Ta- oh, actually, all the murders take place on, a, like, a kind of boardwalk area mm-hmm. by a b- body of water. Yep. Which is funny because it's a movie about baseball, but... Really, it's a serial killer at a like kind of carnival boardwalk area kind mm-hmm. of thing. What uh, what I I spacing on what town were they supposed to be in? I think it was Galveston, Texas. Okay, like, the, like where they actually shot is where it was. Mm-hmm. So I I mean I haven't been to Texas in like forever. So they're like at the Gulf of Mexico. I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, it look. I don't, I don't really know Texas super well. Yeah, I don't either. I think Galveston, I mean, we already used our lifeline, so we're just going to yeah. have to make shit up here. Is Houston, is Houston on the water? Um, I've been to Houston. I mean, Houston's more of an industrial town. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming Gal- Galveston's on the outskirts. It's like, I don't want to say a suburb because I think it's its own city, but it's on the, I think they're, I mean, it could be just a lake. Fuck if I know. Yeah. It's not really implied, but like there's people parking on a fucking beach and shit in the movie. Yeah. They're at the beach. Yeah, and like it, it's kind of a, it's an interesting thing because when you think Texas, mm-hmm. you don't think that. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So it, it's, but I, I don't, I don't want to say Texas vibe, but it's just like, you know, slowpoke. Like, there wasn't a lot of cowboy hats in the movie either, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I think is a plus. But you know, there's there's some good bits in it. Like you know, you got Richard Bradford's police chief who's constantly got headaches mm-hmm. and like just over this shit. And like he's just like, oh man, we gotta solve this crime. Mm-hmm. So they all have a meeting, have some sandwiches. He's got a headache. Go try to figure out work angles and stuff like that. I mean, it. I on one hand that shit's kind of boring. Yeah. But on another hand, it's just like if you're just into that fucking vibe, it's then, fine. As much as they're laid back though, there's like some like internal. Uh, like arguing and whatnot on the on the force, you know. Yeah, because it's like different. Like I think one's like a local police force, and others like state and like you know county. Like you know how police have like four hundred fucking divisions. There's like local, state, county, mm-hmm. whatever. You know all that shit's going on. You know the the jurisdiction stuff where like Roy and Paul Gleason are basically battling out. It's like this is my jurisdiction kind of bullshit. Yeah. I mean, like it's kind of typical of like. 80s cop movie where, yeah. like, there's always some conflict between who gets to solve the crime kind of shit. But, you know, the speaking of Roy, and we already talked about him being potentially too old for this role, it's like he just doesn't... He just seems so fucking over it. Yeah. Like, he's just lighting up cigarettes. He's already dealt with fucking sharks. <laughs> <laughs> he's dealt with sharks, fucking, like, staging a big musical... Like, fucking trying to drive a truck in South America. Like, he's just dealing with this shit at this beach town. Yeah, man. Fuck this. Yeah, I don't blame him for being over it. I mean, but he's great in it. It's just like, I mean, 
I mean, one of the other things, and I think um, friend of the void, Bruce Holacek, I saw his review on Letterboxd about it. He said, like, it seemed like part of the movie was, like, just delaying his wedding because mm-hmm. he's marrying this girl that, like, I guess, like, you couldn't do this plot point now. I think she's, like, in her 20s and, like, he's obviously in his 50s. Mm-hmm. But, like, there's comment on that because, like, I think he knew her mom or, like, I whatever weird shit is. He was her stepdad? No, I don't think it was that weird. No, it wasn't that pro. Well, depending on what side of the coin you are, because <laughs> she kind of had a Mia Farrow look on it. I guess that's why I said that. <laughs> I don't fucking know. There, there's a great scene where I guess like the mom just fucking hates him and like he's trying to impress her and buys her a fucking TV and he's explaining like you know he's making payments on it. It's like a color fist. I mean, I, I like shit like that. It, it has nothing to do with anything, but like you know, he's kind of getting mad at the mom because she's trying to plan this big ass wedding that's going to cost a lot of money. He's like. I just want to fucking watch baseball, mm-hmm. smoke my cigarettes, drink my bourbon, mm-hmm. marry your daughter, mm-hmm. and solve this fucking crime. And you're getting in my way with it. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a weird, fun kind of like, I don't know, dynamic. That like, you know, he's trying to solve this crime, trying to get married, and it's just like, it's a lot of undercurrent stuff. And again, it's part of that vibe. And like, if you're not into it, just be like, that shit could be like, just get on with it. Yeah. Or matter of factly, get on to the juicy stuff, which is like, you know, the kills in the movie. I wouldn't say they're excessively brutal in this movie, but like, they definitely are unique. And I do think there is one, I don't want to say all timer, but there's a really, really stellar one that happens in the fun house. Oh yeah. Like, I mean, like, because like they, obviously the poster gives away that he's got a hook for a hand, Mm -hmm. but like, you don't really see it. Like, that first murder, you just hear that swipe, and you see the girl hit the ground, and she's, like, bleeding out of her neck and stuff. The one in the funhouse is fucking, like... It kind of reminds me of, like, one of the kills in Umberto Lindsay's eyeball. Because mm-hmm. like, there's a funhouse sequence in there. Obviously, that girl and eyeballs on, like, one of those carts going around. But, like, it's a really good scene. Like, a really good murder scene. It's probably the most giallo scene in the movie. There's, like, red lights and shit. I mean, all the murders are pretty grimy, but then, like, when you... They kind of like hold back on the hooked hand thing, and then you finally kind of see it. Right. And, you know, it, the interesting thing is how they kind of reveal it. Because, like, Roy's talking to a guy that, like, writes for sports for one of the local newspapers. And the guy's like, hey, if you can give me anything on this crime, because, like, I guess, you know, the correlation between the wins and all that. Where, like, he, go, he goes to actual, I think, an Astros game, and he's sitting in the press box with the guy. And they're talking about, like, you know, players. And that's when they discover, like, the pitcher who's been winning all these, who wins the games where the murder happens. Basically, when they picked him up, they cut this other dude. Mm-hmm. And when the dude got cut from the team, he got in a bus accident and lost his hand. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's kind of a convenient way to figure out the movie. But whatever. I think it works. Yeah. And there's also another moment in this movie which I thought was really interesting. And, like, I don't know if people would do this now. The killer mistook the pitcher winning a game, which he didn't. And then he apologized for killing the person. Like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Which was another clue in figuring out. Hell yeah. Like, how many times, like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to kill this person because that goes against my motif. Mm-hmm. So he apologizes for it, which is just, it's fucking wild. My hat my hat off to him. Respect. Yeah, so we we should talk about the finale where you kind of finally get the review of the guy, or, or the reveal of the guy as he's chasing, like, um, where he's chasing Karen Young's character around, like, at that restaurant. Mm-hmm. And, like, first when Roy's trying to, like, talk to him, he calls him by the wrong name. And he's like, everyone gets my name wrong kind yeah. of shit. Yeah, yeah, Like, that's fucking great. I Those are things that, like, 
yeah, it might have been done as like a little humor break, but it doesn't play like it. It just plays like man, this like, guy, this, this guy guy's really got a chip on his shoulder about like his whole his whole trip, you know? Yeah, he's yeah. just he's just pissed. And then like fuck, man, with the the showdown's a little ridiculous. It's kind of like it. I mean, it's like he throws Roy through a fucking glass window mm-hmm. and just kind of goes for it, and then like he just kind of like you know gets shot, falls in the water, and dies. And it all happens quick, but it's it's effective. It's effective. It's it's, it's you know I I think it's a pretty good ending. I I I could see in a different world that like. After, like, the end scene, there's a cut to the water, and all of a sudden the fucking hook comes out, like, her for a fucking sequel. But, like, I mean, since it wasn't, I mean, it was sold as a thriller. So, obviously, they weren't looking to, like, make an immortal hook hand killer. That would come years later for I Know What You Did Last Summer. Mm-hmm. Different hook, but. Yeah. But, you know, it does have, the movie does end on a little bit of a hokey late 80s, 90s thing where, like, Roy, just married, goes to the baseball game, and the pitcher who like had been winning those games that all the murderers were based around comes up to him and thanks him for his service mm-hmm. and says, congratulations and goes out and pitches. Hell yeah. So that's how the movie ends. <laughs> I, I, I like it. it you know, <laughs> it, it works for what it is mm-hmm. it, for the whole. I mean, if we talk about it, like that's kind of the expected ending. And like, if it had any other twist of the fucking hook hand killer, like reached out of the water, like he's fucking Jason at the end. I don't mm-hmm. think it would work. So I think or just, he's like, uh, he ends up like taking off the, the catcher's mitt. Yeah. And there's a hook, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure like, if this had ma- been made in the two thousands, yeah. hundred percent would have been like, that would have been like the, the announcer at the game or, yeah. you know, something hot dog vendor. <laughs> yeah. Roy gets a hot dog and hands it to him. It's on the hook. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but late eighties, nineties, they weren't doing that shit. They just wrapped it up and said, "Here you go." So I don't know. You got any final thoughts on Night Game? It's a sick one. It's sick. It's not great, but it's sick in its own right. I mean, I I kind of rated it higher than I probably should, just because I think I think it's your sentiment of just like it's just kind of like sit around like lounge fucking day movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you can be invested or you don't have to be invested. You get the you know, your enjoyment in that kind of movie will vary. And like when I watched it, I actually, I think I watched it on my birthday and that was the, I don't know why I picked that. I mean, I had a stack and I was like, you know, I'm going to watch night game. It's my fucking birthday. I'm going to watch it. I'm watch this movie. So, but you know, it was kind of a lazy afternoon movie. Cool. But, all right. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we return more baseball here on the Cinematic Void podcast, more ball talk. <laughs> For Detective Mike Seeger, America's favorite pastime has just become a matter of life and death. We've got six women killed over two and a half months ago. Want to get this guy? What is that, a cleaver? What are we talking? A butcher here? Some goddamn... What about a hook? You know, like a longshoreman's hook? Every time Barreto pitches and wins, this guy strikes. Now, Mike Seeger has to catch the killer before the killer heads for home. Roy Scheider, Night Game. Unbearable suspense keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cold film odyssey into cinematness with Cinematic Void. 
Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemanist Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. Welcome back. We're taking the mound again, once again, on the Cinematic Void podcast as we talk about more baseball movies. I guess, more specifically, we're talking softball in this one. Or is it baseball? It's softball, I think. It's softball, yeah. I think so, but like... Were they doing overhead, overhand or underhand pitches? I didn't. I wasn't paying attention to that, and that it's kind of sad because, like, I think it was under. I, shit, you know, I don't know. I I I think it might have been overhand. It might have been. Maybe it is baseball, not softball. I. You know what? We were both being sexist and thinking it was softball just because it's women. You know. And I and I just want to I want to admit it. Yeah, I think you're right. I I guess I thought it was so I think on the back cover or something like it says softball, but like maybe it's not. I mean, I don't know. You know what? We're going to we're going to do the rare second lifeline here. Third, yeah. I cuz like I watched this movie twice recently and I have no recollection how they're throwing the pitches. <laughs> well, I love that the uh on Letterbox at least. Uh, the the opening tagline is America's favorite pastime just turned nasty. America's favorite pastime is baseball. And then the next line it says a team of softball players. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm getting confused here. Um, it's a different sport. It's played with a different ball, so therefore it's a different sport. Yeah, and there are different rules. Let's see here. I'm just gonna watch and see where they're gonna throw a pitch. They fucking threw it overhand. They don't throw overhand in softball. Yeah. I wonder if there's just like... There's just no... Uh, I, I, there's I, no consistency here. There's no consistency. <laughs> like, Because it stuck in my head because it was softball because they talked about like being a softball team. I think all the fucking literature for it is... Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the baseball. It looks bigger than baseball. And normally we don't watch these things in real time as we're doing this, but like I'm fucking confused and like... I mean, this guy's striking out. Like, I, I think it's baseball. The thrown overhand. But the ball's, is the ball bigger? It looks slightly bigger, but like, I don't know. Like, oh, there's the fucking dude wearing the hot rod shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. How, how we've t- tied this back that they live now three times. Hell yeah. And just wrestling. Wrestling. It's like, I, all right, we need to stop watching movies. So I can't. I think it's a baseball. All right. So, so baseball films. Yeah, so Let's it is go. baseball films. So, you know, I we were not wrong in saying softball because that's what all the stuff is. But, like, my memory was, like, I don't remember anyone throwing a fucking underhand pitch. Yeah. So now that we've sidetracked it before we started, we are talking about 1990s Blood Games, directed by Tanya Rosenberg. This was her her directorial debut in Swan Song. She never made another movie afterwards which is kind of a shame because this movie is actually really fucking good. The film stars Laura Albert, who is one of the top stunt coordinators working right now. I think she works on the new Hawaii 5.0, 5.0, 5.0, or 
five zero. What? How's the show? Hawaii five zero. That's what the fucking I said five point zero. Like I'm doing a fucking math equation. But she's been in a bunch of other like kind of exploitation movies as an actor. She was in the Unnameable, which is one of the better non Stuart Gordon directed H.P. Lovecraft adaptations. Mm-hmm. And I actually had her out for a screening of the 1990s Doctor Caligari because she's one of the stars of that movie. And I did a Q and A with her, so she's really. She was really terrific that night. So, uh, the movie also stars Gregory Scott Cummins, who appeared in Stone Cold with the Boz, who we mentioned earlier. See, we're we're tying all these together here. He was also in Phantom of the Mall. Lee Benton, who appeared in the TV series Mike Hammer. Ken Carpenter, who was in such things as Hellraiser Three, Elves, and Phantom of the Paradise. So we got a lot of phantoms going on in this too. Ross Hagen, who appeared in Angel and Avenging Angel, and is Avenging Angel a sequel? Yeah, it's the it's Angel Part Two. Okay, it's funny thing, and like there's three, I guess, real Angel movies, and there's a fourth one that came out with a different distributor. Not once does Angel is Angel played by the same person. So with well, with zero explanation, or you know, they well, just they just pop up. Well, I the the first two were directed by the same guy. And I, they wanted to recast part two because they wanted someone that looked a little older for some reason. Mm-hmm. But whatever. Well we, well, we should probably do an episode about Angel at some point in Hollywood sleaze. And the movie also stars one of the greatest exploitation bit part actors, character actors, whatever you want to call him, Buck Flower. You've seen Buck in They Live again. We've talked a lot about They Live in this episode. He's also in The Witch Who Came From the Sea, Tammy and the T-Rex, has a part in Back to the Future because he was on a lot of movies that Dean Cundy worked on when Dean Cundy was doing exploitation movies, including Witch Came to See, The Fog, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So he had a little bit part playing. You know, if you you know Buck Flower because he usually plays a homeless guy or a drunk or something like that. Mm-hmm. He has a really distinct voice, and he has a really kick... Was it a shirt or a hat he wears in the movie? I think it's a fucking he, shirt. He wears a hat that says, the check is in the mail. Yeah, that... that and, it's a, and then it says mail in red. It's like the kind of thing you just get at a gas station, you know? It's like a <sighs> sick-ass trucker hat. Yeah, man, that that... That is a nice touch. And it's kind of nice seeing Buck in here because, like, you know, although this movie came out in the 90s, it is definitely very 70s exploitation vibe. Straight up. For those of you who haven't seen this movie, here's a little plot. The locals made a bet they could beat a traveling all-girl baseball team. See, this description says baseball team. But their friendly game of baseball is about to go foul. When Babe and the ball girls beat the home team, the only error they make is thinking that they will all reach home safely. Now their only game plan is to stay alive. Hunted down like animals, they have to hit and run if they hope to survive. So, the blurb I grabbed is correct. Mm -hmm. All the other shit that says softball is not. Yeah. Again, I think this is institutionalized sexism that because it's an all-woman team, that's softball. But, um... A league of their own, they play fucking baseball. So, and I think this hardball, hardball. hardball. People say you, he plays hardball, hardball. You know they're playing hardball in this film. Yeah, they're they really do play hardball in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess we should talk about how much baseball is in this movie. Well, the first eleven minutes or so, you get a whole entire fucking game. Yeah, they they do. They play a whole lot of baseball at the beginning. I mean, you know. Whereas, like, in the background of Night Game, it's, you know, basically radio and occasionally on TV and then, like, a little bit when he's in the press box and all that. There might be more There might be more baseball in the opening of this one than there is in the entirety of Night Game. I, I, I agree with that. 
And I mean, like it, you want a movie exploitation movie with baseball. Like I, there's a trauma made a movie called squeeze play, which was more of a sex comedy, which mm-hmm. I had on the list, but I feel like it, I want again, baseball doubleheader. I don't even know if this makes a good double feature. It kind of does in a weird way because you get like the slow burn Saturday afternoon movie. And then you got your fucking late night movie here, which is this. So the way I would kind of explain Blood Games for those of you who haven't seen it, it's, I already said, definitely a throwback to 70s grimy exploitation. I'd say it's kind of Deliverance meets I Spit on Your Grave meets The Most Dangerous Game. Would, that's, that's fair. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's it checks all three of those movies off. And I said grimy, it's definitely sleazy, like really sleazy. Like after that baseball scene, there's like a four to five minute scene in a shower with all the women baseball players mm-hmm. and Buck Flower shows up because he's trying to like spy and then they like kind of spray water on him. It, it goes on. There's like dialogue ex- exchanges, exposition, but like for exploitation movie to do it with like basically the, the cheap TNA thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the way you do it. When they, when they, when they grab him, when they, <laughs> when they grab him in the bathroom he goes, oh, that's my bad arm. And they grab him by his neck and he goes, oh, shit, that's my bad neck. <laughs> I, I, I kind of wonder if that's just Buck making up lies because I don't think anyone would write that. That's so good. Fuck. So this movie has a lot of action and there's a lot of uncomfortable violence. Now, I, I think in some circles this is touted as like, I know I mentioned I spit on your grave that this is like a rape revenge thing and i think there's actually ad copy and like reviews that say like there's like multiple rapes in it Mm -hmm. and it's kind of how i remembered it i i ended up finding this thing probably about eight years ago when i was in like a real i was going down a just a big like just kind of looking for crazy horror like going down a rabbit hole of like 80s and 90s horror and and this one's like i don't know up until it being released recently like i kind of never heard of it otherwise so now that the Blu-ray is available, that's that's rad. But like, where did this thing even come from, man? Yeah, I mean, I I know New Beverly played it a few years ago. One really, of like Halloween marathons. Oh, that's so sick! I had no clue. So I, there's a 35 out there. I don't know who has it or whatever, but yeah. like, you know, it's part of the MGM library right now. So maybe our friends at Park Circus have a print. Oh, who knows? Sweet. <laughs> but like, you know, it in. I, there is there is a rape in the movie and mm-hmm. it's it's a pretty harrowing one like it's, yeah. a, it's a gang rape like I I guess that's where the deliverance thing yeah. comes in there yeah for sure but I so I I saw it like eight probably eight years ago and I was telling a mutual friend of ours the other day that we were going to talk about this and he's and I hadn't rewatched it yet and so I'm telling him about it and I remember it just being like a straight up like this is a rape revenge film like the, I thought the whole fucking team got raped. Um, I mean, some of the ad copy in it, like, yeah, implies that what it is, and like it's you know disingenuous. I'm pretty glad that that's not what it is, right. because like you know it it's a rough movie on its own. I think you know. I mean, even the just the fucking baseball scene is crazy. I mean, it's like so much just like they're grabbing all the women's asses. Yeah, it, it's everything. Man. I mean, it's nuts. It's a this is a true true exploitation movie to the fullest. But then. Uh, but then one of the women grabbed the baseball and, and she fucking throws it at one of the players and it hits them right in the fucking nuts. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there, there's a lot of, there's like a lot of give and take in here. And like, yes. you know, I, you know, sometimes, I, sometimes you don't, uh, you don't fully know the perspective of the film. If that makes any sense. You know what I mean? It kind of goes back and forth where you're like, wait a second. I thought this was a feminist film. Wait a second. I thought it was, this thing is just sleazy. Yeah. It, you know? 
it, it it hits all the notes and like i i think if it had been like if it leaned one way too hard i don't think it would work or like mm-hmm. if it, it was like you know a feminist movie and there's nothing wrong with being a feminist movie sure but i don't think the agenda regardless that was directed by a woman is mm-hmm. to make this feminist piece of art right the the agenda is to make a fucking exploitation movie yeah yeah this is not some big statement because, like, one of the things you were talking about, and it's, like, we're not trying to, like, objectify women here, but, like, that whole baseball team, it's, like... It's all, like, the cat... Like, yeah, the casting, they just casted a bunch of fucking supermodels. Yeah. Straight up. Like, the whole team... The whole the whole men's team are, like, the biggest, like, fucking apple dumpling gang yokel motherfuckers. And they, and everything... It's all casted so well. All It's the... Uh, the wardrobe is so well. I mean, it's all fucking authentic. I mean, the check is in the mail. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know? And then, yeah, all the women are just like. Yeah. And like, that's even kind of uncommon for like, I feel like. And it's like, again, I'm just talking about like in the way you cast exploitation movies, like you would have like, you know, the token, like a couple hot women or whatever. Mm-hmm. That That whole team is stacked. And like, it's not just like. It's not just like they're all the same. They're all different too. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's also the rare thing where it's like everyone has personality. Even like the, even some of the characters on the team that are like don't have a big part in the movie. Yeah, they're all distinctive. So true. And like that's just great casting. Like you know, even all the fucking yokels and like mm-hmm. those fucking dudes, they're all distinctive. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's no sameness to it. Like there's. I mean, that's something rare in exploitation movie because normally you get like generic five rednecks. They're like, who's that? Interchangeable. And like, they're all like, everyone's like, stands out. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's just great casting, especially for exploitation movie, which I don't know what the budget was on it, but like. It, I mean, when I saw it before, you know, I, I must have found it on fucking YouTube or something. But uh, it's really cool to to have a. I mean, they they did a great restoration off of a thirty five millimeter print. So I mean, this this new version that we can watch now is like it looks fucking great, and it's and it shows that it had like you know it didn't have a big budget at like by a long shot, but it fucking looks great. Yeah, it looks great. It sounds great. Like I say, the wardrobe, the the acting, the casting, like fucking hits everything, dude. This this one rocks. I'm maybe giving my opinion a little too early here, but uh, this is a motherfucker. This rocks. It's, but also not for everyone. It's fucking sleazy as hell. Yeah, it it does get rough in spots. Like you know, obviously we mentioned there's a extended rape scene in it, but like there's some brutalization on like both ends and genders. Like they people get fucked up in this movie. Like no joke. And like you know, there is. I don't know if it's direct homage to like I spill in your grave, but when Buck's character dies, they kind of hang him in the woods. Mm-hmm. And there's like there's a character that like kind of like the try to word this properly, the mentally challenged member of the the rape posse, and like um I spill in your grave, mm-hmm. where he's like, don't watch me, I can't come. That guy when like Camille Keaton kills him and I spill in your grave, she fucking hangs him. There's a similar death to Buck in there, not the setup, but like. Yeah. It it, it kind of remind me exactly of that. So yeah. I don't know if that was an influence. I mean, it probably was an influence just for just the nature of like what this movie is, you know. But you also get like chase scenes with like because the girls are stuck on that bus, mm-hmm. and like their manager or their manager, or I guess uh, it's Babe, um, Laura Albert's character's dad is like killed. He gets fucking shanked because they don't pay him the full amount of money. Yeah, and this it. I mean, there's a lot going on. Like you, you got action sequences. You have like survival horror moments. Like it, it's grueling and like it's impressive, 
when you think like there's 10 minutes of baseball in front of it. Yeah. So the last 80 minutes is just like it ramps it up for like, you know, a pretty perfect grindhouse like movie experience. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there's no false notes. It's just like, you know, they're like when one of the girl players dies, it fucking hits hard because like they're like the cast is affected. You know, even when like one of the fucking dumb rednecks fucking dies. Their homies are fucking upset. Yeah, dude. When the guy when the guy gets crushed in between the dumpsters, mm-hmm. like Roy, it was Roy's birthday. I don't know if you remember <laughs> yeah. when they when they're playing baseball. There's a huge banner on like the the fence behind the the uh, the catcher, you know, that just says "Happy Birthday, Roy." And I just thought that was fucking hilarious to begin with. It's just like it seems kind of out of place, but then like as soon as the game's over, they're back at their like fucking shit kicker uh, bar, you know, and and it's fucking Roy's birthday, and we're fucking partying. And then Roy gets killed, and you're like, damn, I fucking hate Roy, but that shit hit. Yeah, I mean, that that's the thing. It's like, there's also a point in the movie where it's like, you kind of get some of these, like, dumbass rednecks don't exactly want to go through with it, but, like, it's mob mentality. Yeah. Especially when, like, Ken Carpenter's character's like, I'll pay $1,000 for every one of these dead bitches or whatever the fucking line is. Yeah, it's something like that, yeah. Like, it, it just, like... You know, it, it the movie just switches gears. So I mean, it doesn't really switch gears. It's straight up an exploitation movie all the way through. It, there's no denying that. But like, you know, it goes very action oriented. It goes very like when they're in the woods and it's like kind of booby trap. Like you know, I'm trying to think of like maybe Rambo mm-hmm. First Blood right. kind of elements going on there. So it just it gets gnarly. And then you have um Ken Carpenter and um Laura Albert's Babe character have a showdown at the end in this grain silo. Which is just a fucking insane sequence. Yeah. Like, they're just... I mean, the way it's set up, the way it's executed, and, like, when she basically has to trick him because she's wounded, the fucking, like... They go inside this grain silo and can't find her. She comes swinging down and kicks him and he lands on a piece of, like... I don't know, like, farm equipment? It's fucking impaled at the end. Yeah. It's fucking grisly. And then, you know... I know we've fully spoiled this movie here, but, like, at the end, with all the surviving baseball players, they're all, like, you know, limping back, mm-hmm. you know, with a moral victory, but still realizing everything's fucked. And then it does a fucking slow-motion montage of all the players that died. It's it's great, and what makes it even better is the fucking soundtrack to this movie is awesome. It's, like, weird 70s synth shit, like... Little nine inch nails yeah, mixed in almost. It, it, like there's there was a couple cues that it's like this sounds like pretty hate machine yeah, nine inch nails. Right. Like like it's that era of like like early nineties industrial where it's yeah, it's cool shit. It's definitely synth, but like it just like you know, it kinda goes all over the place. Like I you know, I I think I gave this like a three and a half star rating. The more I think about it, it's definitely a four. Hell yeah. Like, because <laughs> I hadn't watched it in a while and like when I rewatched it, I was like, Oh, this is pretty cool and like, you know, it's like, I, I guess I felt like, eh, I don't know if I can rate this higher than this, but like talking about it, mm-hmm. I'm already actually actively reevaluating it. It's and, not as, it's not as like, it's more the sum of its parts than like just how sleazy it is at times, yeah. right? Like, cause that's what you remember is just how fucking sleazy this movie was and you want to give it a bad rating. But if you're like, if you really look at it under a critical lens, like it has so much more to, to offer. Yeah. And I'm it's a shame that Tanya Rosenberg never made another movie. I don't know why I actually popped on the special features on the vinegar syndrome disc just to see if there was any clue as to why she didn't. My understanding, like I believe she like on the Laura Albert one, she basically said she was a Israeli and I think most of the crew was Israeli. Okay. So I don't know. Like I, it kind of like reminds me of something the canon would have produced. Yeah. 
and like you know not trying to like say because like oh you're is Israeli filmmaker you're gonna make fucking action exploitation trash like Canada did obviously that's not you know there's plenty of Israeli filmmakers not doing that there's a lot of art house stuff that comes out of Israel and mm-hmm. stuff like that but I, it's a kind of a throwback to like that era of canon like Death Wish 3 and like you know missing an action and shit like that like very exploitive action movies but this is definitely like it's definitely out of step with the 90s because like by the time like the 90s hit movies like this weren't going to be made they're more like dare I say like a lot of horror stuff was more cartoony because like at that point, like, Freddy Krueger was just a stand-up comedian. Tell yeah, we talked about shit. Hellraiser 3, where, like, it became very jokey. Mm-hmm. You know, and, like, there, it just, like, people weren't making movies that hardcore. And, my, obviously, there was, like, shot on video stuff that, like, will beg to differ about this. But I'm talking about things that are shot on film that, like, were distributed to play in theaters. Yeah. Weren't coming out like this at the time. Mm-hmm. So, it's an interesting time capsule. And, like, you know, it's, it's just fucking wild. And... Hey, unlike Night Game, there's a fuck ton of baseball in it. <laughs> right. But we're going to go ahead and round the bases here and take one last break. But when we return, read, watch, and listen here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. It started as a Sunday afternoon baseball game. Guys against the girls. Then these rednecks turned out to be real sore losers. That's when things started to get ugly. We're going to kill And we did. 17 to 2. But while we were celebrating in the locker room, the guys were raising hell and looking for trouble. You know what I need just about now? Pussy dumb shit. Mickey and Connie were it. Things got way out of hand. I want justice! Roy's dad turned out to be an ex-mercenary. And we were in a whole lot of trouble. We have to get away from here, so let's go! Those dirtbags hunted us down like animals. But we weren't about to give up. The old mercenary was relentless. He just kept coming. It started out as a friendly game of baseball. But at the bottom of the ninth, it's every man for himself. In blood games. Welcome back. It's now time for... On the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to since the last time we recorded a podcast. So, I'm going to go ahead and throw it over to Nick and ask him, Nick, what have you been reading, watching, and or listening to? All right, so I recently picked up a book called I'm Not Holding Your Coat by Nancy Brill uh, from Rubicon Records that are fairly new uh, on Santa Monica. I'm heading over towards Vermont. So, mostly like, mostly like, I guess you could say like electronic music a lot of like new wave and synth based stuff. Um, 
just runs the gamut of that. But he also has a ton of cool books. Um, so I, I picked this up and uh, Nancy Brill has been, she set up shows in Philly and stuff like that way back in the day. Um, and she's married to uh, one of the guys from SSD. Um, so she's like always been connected in, in the scene, like up and down the East coast. Um, and yeah, so just, I just been reading this. Uh, she's a, she, I think she's even currently a teacher, uh, in Philadelphia, I think. Um, but yeah, she's very interesting and the book is great. I'm almost done. I haven't quite finished it, but almost there just kind of blazing right through it. Um, my favorite part of this book so far, and you'll find this interesting, uh, my absolute favorite, like, and it was like just this, you know, throw away like two lines as she's talking about going and seeing the misfits in like 82 or something right and she, and something that i just never thought about and like i you, you don't really think about it this way right and you see all the old pictures and old flyers and shit and like sure it's the fucking misfits it looks cool as hell but like if you think about it dude like <laughs> like come on like no one liked the misfits when they were around like think about it dude like you go to see the fucking necros and minor threat or some shit. You go to see some fucking awesome raging hardcore. And then some dude comes out and he's like, I'm fucking Dracula. <laughs> like what the fuck dude, get the fuck out of my face. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Right? Like, so she kind of makes a point in the book. There's just like, she liked the misfits, but like everyone at the time thought they were corny. And like, we enjoyed the misfits in like a later era where like, that was just some like sick shit. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like the image of the whole thing is like, it's so rad. But like, if you were there at the time and like, you know, like you were in like to like into like whatever, like the real cool shit, like you probably didn't love the misfits. Like the misfits were mm, kind of dorky. Yeah. And, <laughs> but I, the thing to say is it's like, you know, there's probably a lot of, dare I say even better hardcore bands that came out in the misfits era. Mm-hmm. A lot of them have been forgotten, but yep. Handles the time, unless you were like on a bigger label, like there's you know that Coro record, you know, yeah, which is why I think one of the best hardcore records ever made, yeah, yeah, top five US hardcore records, yeah, but no one fucking really knows, unless you're like actively into mm-hmm. fucking hardcore, no one remembers them or knows who they are, right? But everyone remembers the Misfits, and I think you know, I hate to say it, hokey gimmicks is what like why some of those bands remained or like. Or mm-hmm. essentially branding, which I'm going to talk about a little bit on my rewatch and listen, because like Misfits had a logo, they had an image. Dead Kennedys had a logo, had an image. Yeah, had a unique voice. You know, I mean, Danzig sounded like fucking Elvis. Yeah, that's not common hardcore. Jelly Afro had a really high pitched kind of, some would say annoying voice, but that's what made it stand out. Yeah, yeah, then, totally. And then Black Flag had 800 different singers until they got the Henry Rollins, but they had like the Pedabon, like art, the fucking bars, like all that shit. So. I mean, this kind of ties back to the we were talking about last podcast about like, you know, branding and all that kind of shit that goes with film programming. It's like, how do you make yourself stand out? Well, that's why people remember the Misfits now. Yep. They got clowned at the time, but like. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, full respect to them. Absolutely. And, I mean, always will always be one of my favorites for sure. I mean, but but just to just got to acknowledge that like that's it's just a cool thing to like you know you weren't there and you didn't like the people you know people that are our age or or younger or whatever just don't have that experience of having been there and to like truly know what something was like yeah uh, at the time so i I just thought that was like the coolest little piece of history like (laughs) i mean the whole book is fucking interesting so i'm sorry that my takeaway from this book is just that little misfit story but like she's uh, interesting and, and saw every 
yeah. every one of those fucking bands, you know, or like booked their bands or like knows them and hung out with them and like whatever. Like, you know what I mean? She knows everyone and it's fucking rad, but she also clowned on the misfits and said she liked them at the time and went to yeah. see them. But like none of her friends wanted to go because everybody thought the misfits were fucking corny. And that's so <laughs> rad. <laughs> no, you know that this is how like time and history. Mm hmm changes yeah absolutely super sick um so next up would be watch and i surely have plenty um i watched malignant and i fucking hate malignant dude i'm not even gonna, i'm not even gonna talk about it i'm just saying i fucking hated malignant so much and i just want to say that uh <laughs> um uh what the fuck um i recently we did we we're screening uh right now we're screening memoria at at both of our theaters really on on monday i mean this won't be out by then but like on monday it'll be playing at the arrow as well sort of at that point played at both theaters um but meanwhile ramping up to memoria um i end up what we were screening a bunch of uh apichat pong we are Sethical's films um the first one I saw was Uncle Boon Me. That one's that one's great, and that's probably the one that I would recommend the most. Um, a lot of his films have like a weird, like underlying sci, like a like a sci-fi undercurrent, but it's never really like the main focus of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, his films are very strange, like very like dreamlike, very slow, some very some very long. Um, so you know, not for everyone. But like I say, they do have a, uh, a just a, a strange like kind of weird undercurrent of like mystery and i don't know it's it's cool and and memoria is you know that's a new neon film so that uh that's getting some hype so even i think a lot of people are going to see it that don't really know this guy's work mm-hmm. and th- there are a lot of one star reviews on letterbox i'll put it that way uh this is that shit is not for everyone dude well i mean <clears throat> this film in particular is supposed to never really have a home video release right because it's they, they're kind of treating it i think it's through him that they're treating it as like an art installation moving art installation yeah. right? yeah 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 um yeah totally and uh it, it is that and i i i loved it i loved it but like i don't, I don't know you know, it's also, I, I want to be careful about it. Like it's, I'm, I don't know if I recommend it, you know, eh, but I, I really like his stuff. I do. Um, and there, there's a few I haven't seen, uh, but yeah, uh, uncle Boon me, uh, cemetery of splendor, um, tropical malady. A lot of his films are like in two parts. It's very like, sometimes it's just straight up two stories that barely interconnect. Oh, it's a lot of strange shit going on, uh, in his stuff. So, uh, if you have an open mind, I recommend it. Also, just saw what else? My life is a dog, man. My life is a dog uh, is a film by Lassie Halstrom, and he actually also directed um, uh, "What's Eating Gilbert Grape" of all things. Um, so, but I went into this like knowing fuck all about it, and I, my life is a dog. I fucking oh, I love this movie. It's a, uh, it's Swedish, and uh, it's from 1985, and it's. Yeah, it's fucking. Sad. You've never seen this? I don't. I've never seen that movie. I'm aware of it, but dude, I I loved it so much. It was. It's just so like, it's quirky and almost like that tin drum sort of way. Mm-hmm. It's quirky and dark and, oh, it's so cool, man. I mean, like, I don't know. I'm. Is it is it on Criterion? Um, it is actually, yeah. Uh, and we did watch what, that for the Spine Numbers podcast. I don't know if I can. Can I, can I do a little? Well, the last <laughs> three episodes. Can I do a little plug? <laughs> last three episodes you've plugged away and the podcast still about, isn't out. <laughs> just just talking about my life, you know? It's, 
what we do here. Um, and really, that's, I don't know, I guess that's about it. And like I say, I just had that screening at the LF3 that I chose the film for, which was The Fire Within. Uh, if you haven't seen The Fire Within and you like dark films about suicide, like literally just like, you know, it's not a spoiler. Like the film is about a guy that's getting ready to kill himself. Like that's literally the plot of the movie. It's just like, I'm killing myself Sunday night. So I'm just going out for two days and, and hanging out with my old friends. And then, and I'm telling them all it's done and they don't fucking believe me and whatever. And you know, it's, it's great. It's, it's, it's a motherfucker. It's a great feel good <laughs> movie about suicide. Hell yeah. It's exactly what it is, man. It's, 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 it's great. Um, and then listen, uh, I've been stuck on a few things lately. Uh, my buddy Cam, who does uh, the Chain Gang of 1974 band, um, he does a label called Fever Fever Limited. And um, he recently put out a new EP by a band called Mascara from France. They're like a, like a heavy shoegaze kind of band, like a little Deftones, a little fucking... You know, a little, it's like half Deftones, half Slow Dive or something. Okay. Um, great, great shit. They're they're super heavy. It's super catchy. Uh, it's two songs. So that, that just came out like a week or two ago. Um, and they did like a lathe cut seven inch that there's only 25 of. I grabbed one of those. Um, and then he, and I don't think he's put anything out by this band yet, but I know that he's working with them in some way. But there's a band called Wayside from Australia. Um, and it's just same kind of like shoegazy, heavy type shit oh, fucking i've i've listened to this record so fucking much like to the point of like exhaustion like if if they were if i actually like hung out with other people or like lived with someone else they would kill me <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> just like dude you don't have to just listen to the same thing over and over like i've just been stuck on it so uh wayside uh the record's called shine on me and it's uh I don't know. It's it's maybe to like to name other bands or something. It's similar to like Smashing Pumpkins. Maybe um, I, I played it for you, and I think you said uh, Silver Sun Pickups a little bit. Yeah, a but, little uh, bit. There's something. To, it's like not as clean. It's not as clean. I and right. and definitely like more. They have, you could tell they have more of like maybe a punk rock kind of background or something. I mean, I think some of the polish in the songs remind me of Silver Sun Pickup. Yeah. And maybe when I say Silver Sun Pickup, it might be the early smashing pumpkins influence that was on the early silver sun pickup records mm -hmm. yeah yeah and but, then I, oh go ahead i was gonna say like it i mean i thought it was really good but like it, it that was that was just my impression when i was listening to it yeah right on but um yeah man those those records are just fucking i've just listened to them over and over um also i just got the new three song ep by a band from germany called entropy and it'll be out i think at the end of july uh, but Hans from Entropy sent it to me. So thank you, Hans. Um, and I've, I've talked about Entropy a bunch on this podcast, but uh, it's just great, you know, not not terribly different than the last two bands that I was talking about because it's just like heavy guitar rock, um, you know, influences everything from like nothing in the Deftones, Swerve Driver, fucking everything in between. You know what I mean? Like it's just some Husker Du, Quicksand, Fireside, Jawbox, like heavy guitar rock, catchy as fuck. But these three songs, like they've, they took their LP that they did a few years ago and just like taken, taken what they do to like the next level in songwriting. So these, these three tracks are fucking amazing, man. So that's what I've been listening to. Right on. So for me, read, I, the two main books I've been working on and like one I started when I was like flying back from Salem, which are, which was are snakes necessary by Brian De Palma and Sue Lehman. Yes. That Brian De Palma. Cool. It's a, uh, it came out on the hard case, like kind of pulp 
book line. They've put out some things by Stephen King and other pulp writers, and like I think they even put out the Nice Guys like adaptation. Oh, neat! So they they do a lot of, like you know the the throwback to the Dashiell Hammetts and Raymond Chandler and like Donald Westlake. I think that's his name. Like things like that. So they sometimes do archival like book releases and like or manuscripts that were like just found or never finished or out of print. And they also get new stuff. So I've been reading about that. It's kind of a political thriller. I'm not too deep into it, but like. You know, I can see the the strands of De Palma in there. Okay. Like, the, it definitely, there's a lot of punchy, like, short sentences in it, but, like, you can get the impression, like, you can see the split Diopler shot popping up in your head or whatever. Cool. So, good <laughs> stuff. The other book I've been reading, which is kind of a change of pace, because, well, I know we talk about a lot of, like, music books, and you're reading one, too. I'm reading Corporate Rock Still Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records by Jim Rowland. Oh, man, I need that. And I, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm not far. I'm probably like maybe 80 to a hundred pages in. And I've just gotten to the point that Henry Rollins has joined black flag mm-hmm. and it's a lot more insider baseball and like how SST formed and that kind of stuff. Like, obviously they're talking about like, you know, recording and stuff like how Greg Ginn like was just slow to even release records from the beginning. Cause they did like that first black flag record and that Miniman EP paranoid time is supposed to be the second one, but it took like a year for it to come out. Mm-hmm. And then I think Mike Watt and had started new Alliance and they put out record right away and they couldn't figure out what the fucking delay was. Oh, weird. But it talks about, <laughs> you know, gets into like Greg Ginn's background, like building like, ham radios and that kind of stuff because that's where sst started right it's like solid state technologies or something. yeah that's what it is yeah so it's kind of interesting like he had a successful business that he was funneling into like starting a big record company and like how like you know obviously you can read henry rollins get in the van but like i i feel like you want to get the rollins like era of it like this way you kind of get the whole build up of like black flag and how it became a touring machine and a record label SST became a record label. I'm kind of curious to get to more like the indie rock, college rock era when he was signing like Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. Mm-hmm. Because like, I mean, each chapter, the way it's like phrased, it's like SST versus like Unicorn. SST versus like MCA, you know, oh, like that. because they had their legal issues and whatnot. Yeah, you know? like, well, like every chapter starts with a versus. It's like SST versus the media. Oh, like, geez, okay. So it, it's kind of a cool hook to it. So I've been really digging it. There's so many, uh, there's so many, there's those, you know, like 10 or so, like, holy fuck bands, right? Like maybe even more than 10, really. Like the, their, I mean, their lineup is crazy, right? Like, yeah. you know, every every influential band from from those eras like we're on fucking SST uh, but uh but the amount the amount of records that he put out there are so many just like obscure like Poindexter Stewart and fucking Trotsky Ice Pick and like a billion things that like are not Soundgarden and yeah. not Husker Du and not Sonic Youth you know like there are a million bands on this fucking label and so I'm curious how much they end up talking about that obscure stuff I mean, I think they're going to have to because, like, it's still at the very early stages because, like, right now it's building, like, what I would call the network of friends. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you find places to tour and, like, you find bands to play with and, like... I mean, they... Like, Black Flag created, you know, modern punk rock touring. Yeah. And, like, I mean, I I know there's a lot of, like... We've talked about Black Flag plenty of times. There, There was an ongoing joke that this was a Black Flag podcast at one point. But, like, 
the nitty gritty of this and like as like i think it's a good book to look at like if you're trying to expand and what you're trying to do stuff it's like how do you build stuff Mm -hmm. how you build stuff from the ground up and that's like the most compelling thing about it and obviously there's going to be a point where they fuck it all up yeah like how do you be greg ginn and build relationships (laughs) well i mean yeah they're obviously going to get in that but like it's it's a good read and like i can't wait to like you know finish it up because like i definitely want to get to the weird part where like you know obviously there's the post maybe at the same time late black the gone records and like all Mm -hmm. that shit oh yeah and like the relocation to austin and like all that i mean i i don't know if they're gonna just stay in the main Mm -hmm. era of like sst but like cat sanctuaries yeah fuck man there's a lot there's a lot to unpack in that (laughs) book I mean, you know, it talks about how they, like, Keith Morris quit, and then they brought him back to do some gigs, and then, like, well, we can't keep him around, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, the fight, like, Greg Ginn, like, sent an angry letter when he could have done a phone call about, like, not being credited on, like, I think Circle Jerks on Group Sex re-recorded a Black Flag song mm-hmm. and, like, changed the lyrics slightly. It was a song that Keith Morris wrote with Greg Ginn. Okay. But, like, Greg Ginn wasn't credited on it, and they're like, he could have called us, and we would have done it right away, but he sent a fucking formal letter to fucking get his credit and, like, it also goes into like petty things he would do, mm-hmm. but then he would do similar petty things, yeah, and like think it was okay. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely an interesting read. Uh, watch. I recently saw The Northman in the theater and enjoyed it more than I thought it would. Yeah, like it's visually stunning. It definitely feels like a seventy million dollar, ninety million dollar. I think it's more ninety because of like covid and working around all that shit mm-hmm. if i have a nitpick with it it does feel like a season of one of those viking shows like vikings or like i forget some of the other titles but it feels okay. like a condensed two and a half hour season of one of those shows into a movie but there's a lot of great stuff in it visually and it made me go back and rewatch some robert eggers movies i was never a fan of the witch when it came out i think the hype machine killed it for me because there was a lot of people like this is the greatest horror movie since the exorcist kind of fucking things being thrown around i watched it it's like I know exactly where this movie's going. And like, we were talking about this before on the podcast of like trying to figure out and solve the gimmicks of movies and stuff. And I don't do that, but Mm -hmm. like as I'm watching a movie, I'm piecing together information. And like my problem with the witches, it felt very familiar. Like I know at some point she's going to, she's going to want to live deliciously. Exactly. I mean, not that specifically, but like by the time I got to the end of the witch, I was like, "Eh, whatever. But like rewatching it, I still, I think I like it. I still don't think it's one of the greatest horror movies of the 20th, 21st century, 22nd century, whatever fucking century you're in. Yeah. But I think it's solid. And then I also rewatched The Lighthouse, which I think is his best movie so far because it's just so fucking weird. Yeah, dude. It's sick. Yeah, fucking like Defoe and um Robert Patterson just giving like, you know, it's a two-person play in a fucking white lighthouse. And Hell like yeah. just how fucking weird it gets. It's Lovecraftian. Yeah, it's... Yeah. It's another, dare I say, horror by the water. Oh, yeah. I also recently rewatched for the first time in, fuck, I couldn't even tell you when, Marked for Death with Steven Seagal. It's also got Keith David and a bunch of other character actors. I, I This came because uh, my wife and I watched a riff tracks of a Steven Seagal movie and just like the way he reads dialogue now. It's like, did he always fucking say his lines like that? <laughs> and sure enough, he did. And... But somehow in the 90s and late 80s, it worked. Mm-hmm. Whereas now it's just like he doesn't really move or fight. Like it's just like it's like he's standing there and like he grabs someone by the arm and then the cut of the guy gets thrown around. Like 
during the fucking arm breaking, fucking just bone cracking Seagal days. Like mm-hmm. Mark for Death still, it has a weird ending. It has like a non ending, which which was like kind of a '90s thing. But I still think it's pretty good. And I also recently watched. I had the privilege of seeing um, Chris Lamartina's like sequel to WNUF. WNUF the sequel or part two. I don't know what it's officially calling. I don't want to talk too much about it, but I will say like it's fa- fucking fantastic. Yeah. I, I it this could alienate people or it could be like another like rallying guy because like it's you know I'll, I'll just say the things that's out there. It takes place in the nineties, so and aesthetically, the movie nails the nineties in a way that I didn't think was possible. Yeah. Like, just from everything. And I don't want to talk plot points or whatever, but, like, we got something cooking for this at some point. So, be on the lookout for some kind of cinematic boy WNUF2 thing coming. But, like, it, it's really great. And I know he's a friend and all that, and I worked on the first one and all that. But, like, I personally, and I know I'm overhyped, I think it's better than the first one. Mm-hmm. For a lot of reasons that I can't get into because it's going to... This is the time where you don't do spoilers. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not out yet. And because I was watching it and kind of in a Halloween mood, I decided to rewatch, since it's now on Blu-ray and Ultra HD, Flesh Eater mm-hmm. by our boy Bill Heinzman that we talked about on the Halloween podcast, like, I guess two years ago now. At this oh, point, yeah. Okay. Where Bill Heinzman reprises his League Ghoul from Night of the Living Dead and, I don't know. It, oh, yeah. Yeah, so it, it's a very good restoration, so... I, I'm surprised that there's a 4K fucking disc of it, but oh, rad. that's the world we live in. For Listen, I listened to a bunch of little things, but the two main things I listened to was the new Pusha T album, It's Almost Dry. Holy shit. We've listened to a lot of coke rap in the last two years. Right. That's I, There was a point where you're like, you didn't listen to guitar that's, music yeah, at that's all. Yeah, all I liked was coke rap. And um. I, in a weird way there's something refreshing about this because it just, it feels different, even though like, you know, he's talking about, but the record's half produced by like Kanye West and the other by all Pharrell from, you know, Neptunes and all that. And it's really not, there's not any skips. Like even the stuff that I kind of don't like, I still think is good. Like, you know, he definitely talks about his divorce on like both his guest features or whatever. Hey, you know, you talk about what you know. Yeah, I don't need to hear it on both songs, but like, <laughs> you know, like, but like the it has a really good Jay Z verse on it, mm-hmm. but like it it's a really solid record, and I think it's doing really well for him. So it's, like, I think it's sick as hell. Yeah, it's it, sick as hell. The beats are crazy. Yeah, it starts off with like a really bass heavy track that like, I mean, that Brambleton song. Man, it's so good, and like I didn't I first threw it on in the car. And so, like, I, I didn't even know that my fucking, the sound system in my car was, like, that sick. It's just, like, the bass hits so hard in that song. <laughs> just, like, man, this fucking rocks. I mean, it's it's a fucking solid follow-up to Daytona. Yeah. And, like, it's, like, it has catchy singles. Mm-hmm. It has, like, fucking, he raps his ass off. Like, there's fucking bars. Like, the fucking, like, the one coke line about selling white privilege. <laughs> like fucking had me roll. I was on the plane listening to it. Yeah. And I was like fucking, di- I think I laughed out loud when I heard that line. It's like fucking, that's, <laughs> it's fucking genius. Hell yeah. The the other thing I listened to, because like for some reason, I don't know why I, you know, forgot that Spaz, this power violence band from San Francisco, Bay Area, well, not, I guess Bay Area. Yeah. You know, Chris Dodge now. I think he's in a band called Trapdus, and I think like the drummer of um, Spaz now teaches like 
history in Vermont or something like that. Or a friend, Matt Average, probably know better than us. But, like, Spaz was on the soundtrack to Gummo, the Harmony Corinne movie. Mm-hmm. And it was always a weird thing. There was, like, the song called the Gummo Love Theme. And it's not even, like, it's not really a typical Spaz song because there's some weird shit going on. But, like, I threw it on and then I just went down, out of like, this rabbit hole listening to a lot of Spaz. So, like, Spaz, like, all three band members do vocals in it at different times. There's, like, weird breaks, you know obviously blast beats fast parts but like there's just some interesting stuff in there like there's definitely like a lot of movie references a lot of like just weird fucking like callbacks to like crack and like i I was dropping some shit on nikolai probably last weekend and somehow spaz came up and i was saying this this is something i i recently came up with but i i think it's fucking true uh if not for spaz like power runs would be forgotten like, like the entire like five billion power violence bands that have happened since the year two thousand, like wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for Spaz. Like, no comment and crossed out and even infest. Uh, like, I'm not saying they would be like lost to history, but like I think that they would be. It would be something that you know some old heads would fucking know about and like whatever. But like, it wouldn't be something that's like you know carried on today and like there's still just going to be some power violence show next week it's a very like power violence is a very particular thing it's yeah. it's a very particular um subgenre of hardcore you know mm-hmm. and uh i i think that spaz were like the you know the the they carried the banner into like the the next generations and then after that it never stopped but i think it really would have i mean so i think very important even if as a kind of a joke band like they're very fucking important I mean, the thing is, it's like when you talk about like no comment and crossed out and bands like that, they're very abrasive and very angry and mm-hmm. in some ways very unaccessible. Yeah. Because like it's just very caveman like. And that even goes towards Man's the Bastard, which was more, I don't want to say arty, mm-hmm. but in a way they were more arty. Right. Where Spaz was accessible, like, you know, because they had sound clips and like they would throw in banjos and mm-hmm. even. God forbid a fucking saxophone into a song. But even in all their jokes and whatever, like they name dropped so many other bands and like they like so just it you know, you couldn't help but go check out and, and figure out what the fuck Man is the Bastard is and yeah. whatever else. I mean know? the other thing is the amount of splits they did. They mm-hmm. did splits with like basically every other like pivotal yeah. existing hardcore band that was in like in the nineties and maybe up through like man, I, I'm trying to think when Spaz ended, maybe like two thousand, two thousand one or something right. like that. Like, they did splits with, like, bands across the country and yeah. across the world. Like, Spaz collected other power violence bands like like they were Pokemon. Yeah. And uh, released Split 7 Inches with them. In a way, they curated because, like, a lot of people would buy a Spaz record, but then you would also get fucking, you know, you get lack of interest on the B-side. And then you'd have to go find all the lack of interest records. Exactly. And, and same with Monster. With everything. Charles you know, Bronson. Monster X. Yeah. Black Army Jacket. Yeah. Like, all those bands. So, like, it was a, it's the opposite of gatekeeping. It was like, you know... Mm-hmm hey, we're doing a split with this band because they're cool. And, like, obviously, because they get the Spaz codes on, you're going to go check out all that shit, too. So it also tells you that that uh, maybe even for good reason, but, like, Spaz were also hated at the time by a lot of the motherfuckers that were trying to gatekeep. Yeah. And respect to them, too. I mean, <laughs> the other thing is, like, you know, Chris Dodge ran Slapham Records, mm-hmm. which was, like, the prom- at the time was like that was the label that everyone wanted to be on. Right, like, right. Totally. So like even if you didn't like his band, you probably just the sheer amount of other bands that you did like on his label, you want to be on his label anyway. Exactly. And so like, yeah, those guys, man, they just spread they spread that shit like a the fucking gospel. Yeah, I mean like Max, Max did I think he's still doing two six two five. Mm-hmm. 
and like all the bands that came out of that. And that like, fucking label is incredible. Yeah, and you also like I mean like the, both of those record labels. I you could you could just like if something new came out on it, you would just buy it sight unseen. Oh, it yeah. didn't matter what it you like. Not everything was great, but mostly ninety yeah. percent. Yeah, I mean, know? there was definitely a point towards the end of Slap a Ham that there was a couple yeah duds on there. Yeah, and there was a couple times I think he was ahead of the game. He put out a Burning Witch record, mm-hmm. which was like a you know yeah. very popular sludge band now, but at the time people were like, "Why the fuck are you putting this out?" Totally. So he was like on the he was on the pulse, and then like maybe got a little ahead of the pulse. Mm-hmm. But there's like some of my favorite records also is like that Gasp record, which is just fucking weird. Hell yeah. And like, you know, I still love all that stuff. But yeah, throwing spaz is not for everyone. But like, you know, when you have cool Keith show up on your fucking record. Oh, yeah. That says something. Yep. It was the night. It, I mean, we got into the spaz when we were in high school and it was the perfect bridge of like hardcore hip hop mm-hmm. movie references. A lot of martial arts and like Hong Kong stuff. Like they did a song called Hard Boiled about like John Woo's Hard Boiled and stuff like that. Totally. So it, it was like this perf- and wrestling, luchador wrestling mm-hmm. and stuff. So it and obviously, I mentioned crack. I don't know, like, if it was a joke or whatever. Like <laughs> them fucking, like, selling crack with members of No Less and whatever. <laughs> There's oh, the, a lot of crack jokes in the Spaz songs. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, talking about, like, fucking selling crack. I don't know. So maybe that's why we started listening to a lot of coke rap, was because <laughs> a lot of the fucking crack rock, as I'm doing quotes around it for Spaz. I don't know. But... Anyway, that wraps up this episode of the Cinematic Void Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, why don't you give us a five-star on whatever platform you're using, except for Facebook Podcast, because I got an email saying that's going to not exist anymore. Oh. I only signed up for it because it was an option. It's like, well, I just send the feed there. So yeah. I don't I don't think it's a big loss or anything. I did, If you listen to it on Facebook, let us know. Sorry, it won't be there anymore, but there's plenty of other platforms we're on. I'm hoping for the downfall of Facebook entirely. So, you know, just... Yeah. Just take little pieces of time. Yeah. So now that the <laughs> podcast is falling, what next? The fucking market? Whatever. I don't know. But yeah, we'll, we'll be back at some point. We'll be doing our spine numbers crossover that we've talked about at least on two episodes. I think it's more of Nikolai's schedule at this point. Yeah, motherfucker. Yeah, motherfucker. And, you know, we got some other things we're working on. I guess we. I do need to like... I've been saying, like, we had a bunch of guests planned for February that we had to push off while we had tech problems. I guess we should probably start setting those up. But anyway, until next time, see you in the void. This copyrighted telecast is presented by authority of the Office of the Commissioner of Baseball and may not be reproduced or retransmitted in any form without express written consent.